So you're ranting about capitalism now, Will, and it's strict <laughs> definitions of time on imposed on our working bodies. It's a it's a product of <laughs> it's a, it's a product of the people that I've spent time around of late. Like I spend so little time in person with people who are not my wife. Yeah, that those few times I do spend really stick out. Sure. And <laughs> one of those times recently has been my friend who is kind of like you in the sense of like, you guys have this more learned perspective of the shit behind the shit. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have talked about this before where it's like my view of like, racism and like institutionalized racism goes to like one maybe two levels but you guys are hanging out on the on the roof being like it's all the way up here guys (laughs) (laughs) sure but you have you know the the more important view like of racism in particular like you know 10 times more about it than I ever will just because I I will live through don't experience it than you ever will yours you're as far as racism, racism is concerned, <laughs> you're only ever going to hear about it right. as I'm going to live it. Right. But in the this little progressive bubble that is Santa Barbara, I am only going to get it so much compared to if my wife and I moved to like Alabama or even L.A. or right. Santa Maria for that matter. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but point is where this whole conversation was going. I think it's fine to live a life where you're going to bed like three or four in the morning and you sleep away most of the regular morning. And then you have your day of productive activity from like noon on. Mm -hmm. And then what what got you all excited because I said that the businesses of the world have decided that our normal workday should be from nine to five or eight to five. My boss at my current job at at the bank has openly told us, me and the other guy on my team, openly told us that he doesn't care when we work as Mm -hmm. long as we get our work done. That's the best. Yeah. It is. And so, like, I routinely take three-hour breaks during the day. Awesome. Because I, I will work at night. And it's fine in a time like now where I only have a couple of big projects to work on. Yeah. When I get And face-to-face time isn't as important with other people. Yeah, when I get swamped or I'm doing a whole bunch of launches where I have to be on call from eight to five and still work to get all the work done, that's when it gets stressful. That was like a month ago. That's not my life anymore. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's it was particularly bad for me. Well, (laughs) kind of is again in the opposite direction, but living in a different time zone than my coworkers means like if I'm going to have any conversation with them at all, it's going to be in these particular hours and then those are shaved off by six basically you know three in either direction that one group of us is working that the others aren't so that makes it you know kind of difficult for sure and it makes it difficult to even want to like go work at like eight or nine in the morning yeah when you know that all your coworkers are probably not even waking up yet exactly and it's like on one hand like ridiculous people that get up at five to go like on a run every morning yeah good for them my boss's boss is like that and yeah good for you i guess but (laughs) yeah conceptually i'm very happy for you yeah yeah. i don't want none of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah the true anarchist demand 
no gods, no masters, no bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough, man, because like I very much support this whole like it doesn't matter when you freaking sleep as long as you're like happy and you're living our life and you're not it's not getting but in the way of on shit. the other hand for me like especially in the winter in a place with weather like not being awake during the few hours of sunlight is like a significant detriment to my mental health if I, ah. i'm waking up at 11 and the sun goes down at 4 30 and i'm you know working that whole time like that's miserable yeah yeah i to your point i appreciate the outside and some good weather and sunlight but it's not really a factor for me because i love nighttime overcast yeah and so like that's where i'll get like the most fun yeah totally but yeah i hear you man we're 35 and 36 like we should yeah by the way happy birthday this figured out <laughs> mr 36 year old yeah, you'll understand when you're 36, man. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out by the time you're my age. Yeah. <laughs> 11 days from now, uh, it'll all come into focus. <laughs> so if you are new to the pod this is hype is my superpower i'm one of your hosts steve storman joining me on the line my best buddy will freeland we talk about comics things that get us hype etc etc and uh yeah will happy birthday how's your birthday so far thank you very much good um this whole waking up late thing yeah i haven't gone on facebook yet uh-huh Oh, just the absolute shit show of days to be on Facebook. It comes from such a good place, too. I know. It, it's, more, it's, it's a personal thing, but like, I want to give every single post on my wall a different response. Yes. And it's very important to me that I, that I personalize and like respond to each person. That totally. That took time out of their day to even write HBD. Like, <laughs> it's so much easier to just scroll. Yeah. And so like I need to give each person the like respectful time of day. But usually I've had started by now. And so I don't have a whole lot to catch up on. And I'm very behind. <laughs> it, it is this thing that's caused me like significant anxiety in past birthdays. And it's like, man, yeah. it's my birthday. I should be like, you know, happy that there are all these people who care about me. And instead, uh, just like you know, my own neurosis. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a terrible friend. I'm not keeping up with all these people who care about me. Yeah, it can be tough. <laughs> but yeah, hope you're having a happy, excellent birthday and that all of all of the things are awesome for you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Very much appreciated. Anything else you're hyped on or talk want to talk about before we start the show? Well, Eternals is next week. Oh my God. Yeah, Eternals is coming up. That's exciting. Um, there's a new My Hero Academia movie that is out this week. Nice. That is hype for me because it's one of my favorite anime. I finished this Lego question block on my Twitch stream on Friday. It took four sessions, which is very exciting. That's so just a good. That's a Gotta good. Got to milk sign. that content. Yeah, and it's just it was it's so much fun. I, awesome. It's, it's such a great set and so many little 
homages and Easter eggs and, and references a, and a great, to the levels. Great and vibe stuff. on your on your Twitch channel too. Just it's it's, it's been fun, fun to, man. Yeah, like sometimes I'm in there and I'm like active in chat, and sometimes I'm in there just like playing Metroid Dread on my Switch or whatever, <laughs> which I finished. Nice, it was great. Yeah, there's been talk between me and Alan about Super Mario Party. Oh, interesting. We all have a Switch. Okay. Because that supports online play. And also, big plus is that you can save your progress on the game. You don't have to do it all in one sitting. Oh, nice. Yeah. That, you know, we'll have to talk to chat about that. If if we can get four of us to pick it up, then like it'd be fun to play some games. Sure. Yeah, I feel like this is generally a mostly positive time frame around just like Nothing too major bad happening. Nothing too majorly hype coming up. Although in like six weeks, the new Spider-Man movie comes out. And I'm super oh, stoked for that. Oh, man. Honestly, yeah. I think I'm going to take the day off for that. You know, I need to get back into the MCU. I still haven't watched Black Widow. I still haven't watched Shang-Chi. I finished What If. So I've watched all of the, you know, the Disney Plus shows. They've okay. been hit or miss for me. Mm-hmm. But it, it hasn't felt like the same thing. I think the experience of like going to a theater and like doing, you know, that's such a significant part of it for me. And it's been a long time now. Yeah. Since uh, Far From Home. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited to uh, to get back into it and we'll see where where I am with it, where it is. I did finish What If this weekend. Excellent. And that was kind of, it was a fun diversion. You know, it's, it's fun to like watch and think, oh yeah, what if? Ah." (laughs) (laughs) I also thought I was only starting and then couldn't stop myself from binging through everything that's been released so far of the new season of Doom Patrol. Oh, wow. Cool. My God, that show is good. Yeah. I've hesitated giving you the full on recommendation. I'm not sure exactly whether it would strike you. I do think you'd like it. It's not a superhero show. There are very few shows that are as devoted to their characters' internality as this. It's like, yeah, it's like a real, real intense character study on five characters Hmm. who are various degrees of incredibly fucked up about halfway due to supernatural, you know, sci-fi shit and halfway Mm -hmm. just because they're messed up people with lots of problems in general. Yeah, conversationally, I've wanted to see it. It's just, I haven't even put it, I haven't even watched the first episode yet. The first episode was the worst to me because Mm -hmm. it was like, so it's got Alan Tudyk, the um, wash from Firefly, et cetera, et cetera, as uh, the the main villain of the first season. And he is like a narrator. It sets it up as like, oh, it's shtick is that it's like self-aware. Ha ha. That is only like so interesting to me, like, you know, whatever it's been done, but it, it goes beyond that pretty quickly. And once you start getting into the characters and invested in in the characters, then the show really, really, really starts to shine. It's also a show that just throws so many ideas at you, kind of like mm. Sense8 in that regard. And, and it's based off a of Grant Morrison comic. So, of course, but like <laughs> there's just so many ideas flying around. It's really intoxicating to kind of step in and, and play with them all. Cool third season introduces a character who's played by this 
actress from this obscure British sitcom that Yedidia got me into uh, called <laughs> Green Wing that's set in a hospital. And th- the funniest actress from that is in season three. And she's just a delight. Like every single scene, she's just batshit. And it's so much fun. Cool. Yeah. All of the Marvel and DC based shows I want to check out. Like, I still want to watch Titans. I still want to watch Doom Patrol. I loved the first two seasons of Young Justice. Mm -hmm. And then it got canceled. And then the third season came out on HBO Max years Mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. And I think they're doing a fourth season. I don't know. But so, like, I really want to watch that. I still want to honestly watch the Watchmen TV show. Yeah, I haven't watched that either. Who watches The Watchmen? Not us. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was such a cheap joke. I apologize to everybody listening to this. That was awful. I'm sure Paul will say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's just like a whole handful of them. And like, again, it's a cop out to say there's just not enough time. But like, I just don't go and carve out the time specifically for that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I will say I when I have time to watch something, I typically try to do something that I can half pay attention to. Yeah. And have it running while I'm working at night or something. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I'm jumping to the conclusion that these shows I'm going to want to like focus on. Doom Patrol, yeah. When I'm watching it, it's definitely the main thing that I'm doing. I might like yeah. be playing a game on my phone or something, but something that's just like absolutely no brain power because right. you do have to keep up with there's just so much wacky shit going on that yeah. you you have to like at least you you'll get lost pretty easily. On the subject of TV shows, mm-hmm. Alana started watching uh Yellowstone. It's on oh, it's, I haven't even heard of that. I feel like she's been watching it on Peacock or Hulu. Man. I don't know. It's amazing. Okay. It is. um, Are you familiar with Succession at all? I've I've heard of so many people freaking out about it, but I I don't know really anything about it. So the third and final season of Succession is out and airing now. Like the second episode just aired last week kind of thing. Okay. Are you on Succession? Yes. Now. Now I'm on Succession. Alana started it because she wanted a new drama. The trailer didn't look too attractive to me, so I didn't really care. So she watched it on her own. And then I would like poke, pop in here and there and check it out. And I yeah. ended up watching the entire second season with her <laughs> <laughs> because like for the most watered down possible version of a pop culture reference, yeah. it's like Game of Thrones for business. Okay. Where, so the head, the king, the father of the that owns the business mm-hmm. has a heart attack. Mm-hmm. The, the whole premise is in the first episode. Yeah. He has a heart attack, and then there's this whole like, what's going to happen because he has four kids, and they're all trying to kind of vie okay. for their rightful inheritance of the sure. company kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that was the premise of the trailer. And how do you make three seasons off of that? <laughs> yeah. But the characters grow on you. And it's really impressive. It's really good. However, comma, Yellowstone is arguably better. It's the same thing, but for like a ranch owner in Montana who owns like the Yellowstone National Park kind of thing. And it's uh, Kevin Costner is the executive producer and he's the father in the show. Okay. 
all of the characters are so amazing. And there's a few of the scenes where I got really impressed with the consistency of character. How you and I have talked about like the consistency of writing for Storm. Yeah. And sometimes in in general Cyclops, like they did that for a couple of, I mean, every character in Yellowstone, but there was one specific scene in the second season with the daughter that they like, whatever the daughter was going through, every scene she's in, they know her character and they have her own that type, her personality, like to a T throughout cool. every scene. It's so good. I highly, highly recommend, even, even if it was, if you and Andrea, or if you and Andrea, that's Stu, if you, if you and Rachel are looking for a show to check out, I, okay. I would highly recommend checking out Yellowstone. Cool. I might do that at some point. I don't know. We're trudging through the wire right now. We nice. just started season three on that. So that's a long haul but <laughs> yeah that's got like 10 it's got five seasons but okay it went for a long time though yeah the the thing is that the episodes aren't aren't anything like you're never going to want to watch more than like two episodes at a time just because mm. it's like too heavy oh. to you know and dense to like really binge in any sort of way mm-hmm. it is very much not a bingeable show actually like yeah, okay. when you've had enough wire, you've had enough wire. <laughs> yeah. Lana binged the first two seasons of Yellowstone. I've only watched like three quarters of it. She yeah. binged the first two seasons within about a week and a half, two weeks. It was impressive. I mean, that was what, <laughs> what surprised me so much about flying through Doom Patrol is that like, I've told you this before. I'm terrible at watching TV. When people recommend yeah. things to me, I'm like, I, you know, I really value your recommendation, but I just like, I get through and to TV so slowly that it just doesn't like it. It I'm still like, I was recommended the wire 10 years ago and I'm finally getting to it now. You know? I mean, yeah, that's, that's me with, with non six, one, six Marvel comics. Yeah. Or comics at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. So I value the recommendation. I hope one day I get to it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with, with TV shows, it's not like they get worse, you know, like right. they're going to be just as good for your first watch, Although, whether you watch it now or you watch it in 2050. I, I do have to say the wire feels more like a period piece now, <laughs> you know, like okay. they've got flip phones and shit. Like somebody oh, pulls out like, right, yeah. and they're talking about like, you know, immediate like post 9-11 impact on policing and the drug war and like resources being devoted away to or towards terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is part of the background of the of the plot. And you're just like, yeah, this is about this is about a time <laughs> and a place more than it is about like some statement on the human experience. Yep. Yep. Cool, man. Yeah. Should we get into the show proper? This was a pretty good week for comics, at least for me. I feel like there's there's a good amount to like pick at and, and take a look at. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get into it then. You this is your spider gush week, right? This is a spider gush week. Two weeks ago, I read Venom, Venom Beyond, Volume Five, and it's the direct lead up to back King and Black. Yes, upcoming big crossover. Yeah, yeah. I think I can shotgun this one. Okay. Because a good amount of it happens in a non-616 world, but it explores an interesting alternate reality. And then we did Captain Marvel, The New World, which also happens in another reality. Cool. (laughs) But it's just another alternate universe 
that they use to introduce a new villain into 616. So, okay. And then you've uh, got Spider-Man and a, a companion book to it? Yes. Did you but do I those also, Okay. Yes. I also oh did God. Black Widow. It's written by Kelly Thompson. Yeah. And it's kind of, it kind of acts as a new jumping off point for Natasha. Oh, cool. And like, it's um, misleading to say they give her a new backstory, but they give her something new that she's, she's never had. And it was relatively interesting. Cool. How it got gets resolved is a little bit of a stretch for me, but it is what it is. Anyway, okay. And then, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 11 by Mr. Nick Spencer. Yes. Last Remains. It's the big confrontation with Kindred. It was a whole thing, man. They did a lot. And Spencer was telling so much of a story that he released the Last Remains Companion. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Last Remains is six issues. And the companion is five. And the first Dang. five issues of, of Last Remains had an also what is happening issue kind of a thing. Oh, okay. So the numbering is 50 to 55. And then for the companion, it's 50.lr for Last Remains to 54.lr. So oh, it's like legitimately five. Jeez. Like, okay. <laughs> When you get those, like when you get the side stories in like big crossovers, it's like you get it starts the issue with like this happens before issue number sure. four kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of stuff like that. Which honestly, I didn't care as much about the companion issues as much as I thought I might. Mainly because I I don't feel like Spider Woman and Spider Woman <laughs> really have that much of a connection to Peter Parker. Like, it just doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, their origins have nothing to do with them. Yeah. They're just, quote unquote, just spider-based because their origin stories were related to spiders. And so anytime <laughs> you want to do a Spider-Man and his spiders story, instead right. of getting the people he's related to, you get all the spider people. Right. And, and, it's <sighs> like, why not just throw in Black Widow at this point? Right. <laughs> just you know, like, it. Yeah. It is what it is. But anyway, so there's a bit to chew through here. And then we have another chapter and a half for Nomon, correct? Yes. Although we'll see how much I get through. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start with Venom and I'm going to end with Spider-Man. Okay. So Venom, let's see. The last thing that happened was Venom Island, where right after Absolute Carnage, they got through Absolute Carnage by Eddie taking on, he has his Venom symbiote, but he also took on the Carnage symbiote. Okay. And he exiled himself onto Venom Island, which is an island that he had previously exiled himself back in the 90s when he first got uh, the Venom symbiote. Anyway, point is, that story existed in order to separate the Carnage symbiote from the Venom symbiote. Okay. It also acted as a Eddie accepting that he's going to need more help. And so at the end, he goes to the Avengers at Avengers Tower. And he's like, guys, so this guy, Noel, is on his way. I'm not going to be able to fight him on my own. I need your help. Okay. So this volume actually starts with the Avengers being like, why did you hold that back from us for so long? What the hell? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They're just like, crap. Well, now we know we need to plan. <laughs> <laughs> so Eddie goes back to New York. He's got his son and they're doing so much with Venom in terms of like, he's very much his own character now, the symbiote. Sure. And that, and that's been really 
kind of what they've been driving home the last few years. But mm. over the last, you know, 30, it's <laughs> just been this like symbiotic parasite thing sure. that never really had its own real voice. But so like he's a lot more autonomous now. He has his own voice. Like he can pull his head off very much like the movies now. Like the movie. Like sure. He, yeah. Yeah. And so the symbiote can talk to people. Venom and Eddie can talk to people. They, they have this like relationship now where like it's raining and he uses the venom symbiote to make an umbrella kind of thing. Okay. And so like they're really leaning into this like bond with the two of them. Sure. Anyway, they get ambushed by this guy in like thrown together war machine parts <laughs> with a painted yellow venom symbol and he calls himself virus. Okay. We don't know who it is, but for the sake of time, we find out that it's actually Mac Gargan. Scorpion. The Scorpion. Yeah. So hasn't the Scorpion hasn't Mac had a symbiote in the past? Spent some time as Carnage? Yeah. So he would no he he had the Venom symbiote back oh, he had the in Venom the symbiote. Dark Avengers time era. Oh, okay. And because he was a host of the symbiote uh, in Absolute Carnage, he was targeted to get his codex stolen by Carnage. And basically, Eddie let Mac get attacked in order to save his son. And Gargan ended up getting saved by Miles. And that's when Miles got turned into the Carnage symbiote thing. Okay. It's a whole thing. But anyway, so Mac is Mac is pissed. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say it left him paralyzed. And he's using that suit to walk. I want to say it, but I'm not 100% sure. No, yes, it is. It Yeah, he he can't walk. Okay. Confirmed. Okay, okay. <laughs> Main point is Virus is attacking Venom. He has this cobbled together war machine armor. He's got a goblin guide glider. He's got some pumpkin bombs. Basically, he like found like an old shield storage unit and just like sure. stuff together kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while they're fighting, all of a sudden they get away and they go and find Maker. If you'll remember, Maker is the Reed Richards from the Ultimate Universe. Oh, God. Okay. Who is turned bad. Right. He, right. So he's like the, the real big bad of the Ultimate Universe. Right. It did get explained how he came to 616, but I don't remember it. I just know that it, <laughs> it happened. It, sure. It felt like BS. But anyway, his entire dream is to rebuild and get back to the 1610, the Ultimate Universe. And... Two volumes ago, <laughs> or three volumes ago, right before Absolute Carnage, we see that the Maker is contacting the Council of Reeds, mm -hmm. and he shows that he has a vial of the symbiote from, from the Ultimate Universe. Symbiote from the Ultimate Universe is science-based, man-made. It's like this black... Just like mutants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's this this is black goop that Eddie and Peter's dads made, and they made it as a cure all to like help cure cancer and like you know, like help like jumpstart symbiotic relationships, yeah, rather help than... jumpstart the immune the immune cells in your body, blah blah blah. Okay, yeah, it's just it just lives in this like vile thing, anyway. So Eddie gets there and there's this dimensional portal. We don't know what's going on with it. And Maker is just like, yeah, I'm 
making a portal to get back to 1610. And he's like, yeah, I'm leaving. Actually, we are. And it shows that he has the symbiote on his body now. And so now you have the insanity of wow. Reed Richards' maker with a symbiote. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and the Venom symbiote, 616 Venom, is freaking out about it. He's like, we need to attack this. We need to attack. This is ridiculous. This, this can't happen. I don't sense it because it's not part of the 616 hive mind. And it's it's freaking the Venom symbiote out. And so he goes to attack and Maker is just like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Like with one, with an open hand, he pushes Eddie out of his symbiote. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we don't know if it's Baker figured out how to do this or that's the weirdness that is the the man-made symbiote from another universe. It's very strange. In their confrontation, Virus shows up and just shooting guns, throwing blasts and all this other kind of stuff. And in the kerfuffle, the dimensional gate gets kind of messed up and they all get sent through the gate. Now, Maker shows up in the apocalyptic reality of 1610. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm home. <laughs> and then he may, he has this like smirk and he says, perfect. And then it shows Eddie, Venom, and his son, Dylan. Now, if you also remember a side, side fact, Dylan has this weird remote control symbiote thing he has these like powers that we don't really have we haven't explored like at all hmm. but he can control symbiotes like a remote like telepathically okay basically he can tap into the hive mind that the symbiotes all have oh so he can like as long as you're wearing a symbiote he can kind of telepathically reach out to you and say hi interesting okay just due to exposure more than anything or we don't know yeah. Okay. I mean, he's he's Eddie's birth son, and sure. this is where uh, I think I feel like I skipped over this because I thought it was going to be something to bring up later. But Maker mentioned in his studies of the symbiotes that the Venom symbiote or symbiotes in general seem to reproduce in preparation of some catastrophic event, mm -hmm. like as as a like defense mechanism or something to increase survival chances, yada, yada. And so, cause he basically goes down the list of like when venom created carnage it happened right before some event. And then when the five symbiotes from carnage were created, that happened before some other event. And he kind of goes down the list of like three different births. And then he's like, so I have a theory that Dylan was born and gained these powers in the preparation of some other event. And so the undertone theory is that it's in preparation of Null to help protect Earth from Null, but we don't know because hmm. Black hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. So, so we'll see. And yeah, that's just yeah. Maker's theory. And he's talked to the Council of Reeds about that theory, but nobody else. Okay. So anyway, so everyone wakes up and they're in this weird sort of future time New York with a lot of null symbols like all over the place. Huh. But this null symbol doesn't have for people who can't see between me and Steve. Um, <laughs> think the venom, the venom spider symbol. Yeah, But instead of the separated legs, they're all together. Mm -hmm. And it looks more like a dragon symbol. 
because Noel flies around on those Grendel dragons. He has these symbiote dragons. Right, and so right, right, right. I think this is a Noel symbiote without the influence of a Spider-Man kind of thing. Okay. That's sure. what it seems like. So anyway, turns out Virus ended up there too. And so they have a little fight and the Venom symbiote is talking to Eddie and he's like, I feel kind of weird. I feel more powerful. I feel like there's a weird, there's a much more powerful connection to the hive mind here. I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is very strange, but I think I figured out how to use some new powers. So the Venom symbiote is like, wait a second. I think I, I think I got this. And he basically turns his hand into an arm cannon like Samus. (laughs) okay and shoots like a giant energy blast so basically virus shot him with like a unibeam basically Mm. and the venom symbiote's like wait that was energy we could use that and eddie's like what are you talking about he's like no check it out check it out check it out (laughs) and he turns the arm into this like tentacled arm cannon and shoots it at virus and knocks him away and eddie's like what was that and and venom's just kind of like i don't know but i just kind of figured it out I, I feel like i'm learning how to use our full potential blah 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 blah. it's very strange so anyway we get introduced to this universe's avengers which are all symbioted so you have like a steve rogers with a venom symbiote you have a thor with a venom symbiote <laughs> okay you have a she hulk with a venom symbiote you have a natasha black widow and an iron man and then there's yeah. on the side you know, comics, 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 and we get introduced to what's called the resistance. The resistance is led by that world's venom, and they're backed up by some much bigger venom-sized people. The and this this looks like Agent Venom, and Agent Venom right. from in six one six is Flash Thompson's venom, mm-hmm. and so Eddie thinks that's Flash. We also see that there's a place called the Hive, basically downtown. It's the bad guy's base. And they are being led by basically what looks like Null. So it seems like Null has already landed on this planet. Mm. And this is a Null verse. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, so the Avengers are working for Null and the Resistance is led by Venom and they're chosen. We find out that it's not Flash Thompson, but it is, in fact, Annie, who is Dylan's mother and Eddie Brock's old flame. They are broken up in 616, but she is apparently Agent Venom of this world. (laughs) Other members of her resistance are these other agented people. You have Peter Parker who has a mustache, which is <laughs> no. hilarious. Oh, God. No, make it stop. <laughs> yeah. You've got Cletus Cassidy, you have Deadpool, and you have Andy Benton, who is Mania, and she has a symbiote, part of the Venom symbiote. Back from when uh, when Eddie was in, I think it was Chicago, and he was a gym teacher. In order to save her life, he gave her a little bit of the Venom symbiote, and she became Mania, and she is now a character. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Parker still has his abilities, like his spider sense and all that kind of stuff, but he is also Agent Venomed out. Cletus is a good guy here, and so we're trying to figure out what the hell happened. (laughs) How did all this happen? 
And so basically the backstory for this universe is in 616, when Eddie got the Venom symbiote, he got it at that church where the Venom symbiote was hiding. And he went to that church to commit suicide because he had hit such a low place. And then, you know, the Venom symbiote fed off of that. And that's how they became the bad guy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. In this universe, Venom or Eddie succeeded in killing himself. Okay. And Annie was so broken up about it. She was the only one that went to his funeral and she went to the church kind of to say goodbye to him. And then the Venom symbiote found her. And so this is a universe where Eddie successfully committed suicide and Annie became Um, uh, Venom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So... More comics stuff happen. More bad guys are involved. Every other hero we come across seems to be working for Null, and they have their own little symbiote on them. I say I say that, and like other people that have shown up are like Doctor Octopus, Juggernaut, Thing, Wolverine, Sabretooth, Omega Red. They all work for Null. Mm-hmm. We get introduced to on the Resistance's side. We have. Super old and kooky Reed Richards. Oh, okay. I say old and kooky because he is very old. Sure. Big old Karl Marx beard and crazy yeah, hair. Yeah, and his yeah. eyes go in different directions. Like, oh, yeah. He's super, he's super kooky. Like slapstick almost. Yeah. Virus gets his own symbiote and becomes the scorpion with the symbiote. And the resistance gets introduced to the son, Dylan. And everyone kind of freaks out. They're like, wait, Dylan. And they're like, yeah, what what are you talking about? And Annie says, in our world, Eddie, Dylan is the main bad guy. Mm. In this world, he's called Codex, but he's taken over by the Null symbiote. Interesting. He's like, yeah, Dylan is Codex in this world. And there's some weird BS kind of timey-wimey stuff. But basically, (laughs) when Annie got the Venom symbiote, she was at that point already pregnant with Dylan. Okay. So it's still it's still Eddie's son, but just way earlier in the timeline than in our timeline. Okay. And Dylan starts getting these visions of this red spiral, basically along the lines of, and that's kind of what Noel is known for, is this like red spiral, basically. Okay. And Noel comes to Earth and takes over Dylan and chooses Dylan. And then everybody, there's this giant symbiote war with all the heroes. And they all have symbiotes and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Hmm. Basically, the main, the main takeaway here is Venom gets a new ability because he's closer to the Noel hive mind. And so Venom figures out how to unlock more of its potential, which apparently there's more potential to be had. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, right. Dylan is getting more and more practice with controlling symbiotes. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of figuring that power out. It ends with them stopping Codex and 616 Dylan wanting this universe's Annie to come back with them so they can be a family. Mm-hmm. They spend some time, they spend months there after they defeat Codex. It's taking that universe's Reed Richards some time to figure out how to make a new portal. And so they spend a few months there as a family with just the three of them. And it's glorious and having a great time. Portal opens up. Eddie and Dylan go through the portal and they come back and Earth is black. Like 
there's no sun, everything is black. Eddie says, where did all the stars go? And just says, to be continued in King and Black. Well, okay. Yeah, so, (laughs) which is super interesting because that tells me that Eddie was off world by the time Noel gets to Earth. So that'll be interesting. Mm. Yeah, so it it was fun. I really liked it because it's kind of one of those like what if stories of just like, you know, what if Eddie actually kill himself and what would happen to the venom symbiote after totally totally yeah yeah (laughs) it's kind of dark but like yeah so when we did that pod with the ethics fellas and we were talking or i guess it was just matthew on what if on the show what if yeah we've done a few with them now yeah the old school what if comics end up being actual canon like what if you know what if jane foster picked up the hammer instead right yeah stuff like that or what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four, yada, yada. Yeah. I feel like the go-to these days is instead of doing a what if comic, they do an alternate reality and just make it like that reality's canon. Instead of doing <laughs> a one issue, they do a one book. <laughs> because that same kind of thing happens in this next book, Captain Marvel. Oh, interesting. Where there's like, let's do one small change and see what happens. Let's pull a Nando V movies and <laughs> sure. one small change. And, and what would realistically happen after that? Yeah. So this was fun and interesting. But yeah, now Venom has a Unibeam arm cannon thing. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I'm sure that's fine. It, it's so... I'm going to be honest. I kind of hope that after King in Black, he loses that ability <laughs> because giving Venom a projectile seems strange. Yeah, I see that. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. He's, he's a melee character to me. <laughs> <laughs> also, just that you compared it to Samus and then losing your abilities all the time. Very, very. Totally checks out, right? <laughs> as, soon, as soon as Donnie Cates drops the title and someone else has it, he, he's going to lose all of his abilities. Yeah, yeah. He's going to have to go and find him again. <laughs> go have to get the Machozo balls all over again. Seriously. Yeah, so we have Captain Marvel Volume 5, written by Kelly Thompson, who also wrote the Black Widow book. So basically, it starts with, well, one of my favorite things is the banter in Kelly Thompson's Captain Marvel. So yeah. banter between her and Rhodey and her and Jessica Drew. It's just so much fun. But I also have no idea when this is happening because, <laughs> because Jessica Drew is in her regular Spider-Woman outfit, not the one with the jacket, not the like biker lady look. It's like the classic Spider-Woman outfit, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is whatever. But then on top of that, she's involved in Last Remains. So like, mm-hmm. when is this happening? I don't sure. know. What is what it is? Anyway, for frame of reference, Carol and Rhodey are dating and they're very much in love. And they are excited because, oh, Carol just got reinstated into the Air Force. So she's going to go back on active duty. So she's excited about that. And then Rhodey and Carol just planned a vacation, like a real vacation that they're going to go and just have together. Oh, which they're very excited about. Yeah. And basically, Carol called in some favors for one last mission because they got called in to take a look at some spaceship that showed up. Well, Carol got called in and she asked people to join her. So she asked, she's like really good friends with Hazmat now, which is fun. 
Interesting. Yeah, Hazmat was introduced in Avengers The Initiative. Yeah, it's nice to see these minor characters get up-jumped into... Yeah. Into and she was roles. Avengers Academy for a bit. And yeah, so for those who don't know, Hazmat is... She is basically all things radiation. She exudes radiation. She can suck in radiation. And so she's in a hazmat suit, especially designed for her mm-hmm. because she doesn't want to kill the people that she hangs out around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she has since gotten a either more control or a power boost that she can control sending the radiation out. But it takes a lot of concentration. And so she still wears the suit in case she like. Sure. You know, so she doesn't have to up. think about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when she goes out on the field, she's going to be in the suit. Anyway, so Carol calls Hazmat, Rhodey and Jessica Drew to help with this. Whatever this is, she goes to look at it. It's hanging in a tree as a spaceship that nobody recognizes. They don't get it goes up and then these black like tendrils show up on the ground uh, and then from the ship and they grab carol and she's like what the hell happened and then bright light flash and all of a sudden she's shot into the future (laughs) 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 so um (laughs) so she shows up in this like dystopian new york and she's greeted by this person that kind of looks like phantom x does look like phantom x yeah right and then there's someone else in the background who's trying to figure out who it is. And then Carol's still figuring out what's going on. This Phantom X looking person has guns drawn because, you know, it's someone just showed up. So Carol shoots them back. So the person creates this like blue sci knife kind of a thing going on. Hmm. Like what's going on with that? And starts to attack her. And then they get stopped by this person. And he says, that's Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. And then the person's like, oh, shit. He's uh-huh. like, Captain, Carol, you have nothing to fear from us. We, we didn't recognize you. Carol's like, "Who the, do I know you? And he's like, it's it's Jerry, Carol, Jerry Drew. Jerry Drew is a baby. Uh, I think I have bad news. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? Where am I? Well, you're in Manhattan, not far from the old cloisters, but it's the year 2052. <laughs> so Jerry Drew, Jessica Drew's son, it's all grown up. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. So we've been shot. What I loved about this, that is the fact that it's 2052 means that it's like 31 years into the future and mm-hmm. not just a straight like decade multiple. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. they always do. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I got real excited about that. <laughs> I was like, oh, no way. They did 31 years. They're just preloading it for when people read it next year. Exactly. Just kidding. It came out last year. <laughs> I double checked. It's not. So <laughs> this is Captain. This is a Captain Marvel run 2019, but it's issues 22 through 26, which okay. puts it in 2021. Uh, okay. Well, ah! <laughs> man, you're really catching up then. I know, dude. I'm so excited, dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is like one of my biggest accomplishments of 2021. Let me tell you. <laughs> forget, forget, you know, launching a podcast. Forget launching, you know, a Twitch stream. Forget, like, you know, getting this giant personal brand into an internet media personality. No, 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 no. no you caught up no. on comics. I'm catching up on comics. Because, <laughs> like, there's going to be a time, dude. Once I'm caught up. Yeah, there will be weeks where I don't have anything to read, and and I'm you have gonna to have go to into the back catalog. I guess 
I've been so on the side. I'm not gonna lie. I'm on the side. I've been reading all of the back Marvel Zombies comics. Oh, I wasn't gonna cover those here. Yeah, but like New X Men is definitely one. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because uh, the third volume, I, def- I yes. still need to read. Yeah. But yeah, it's strange, man. It's real strange. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. So we've got an adult Jerry Drew. We get a diamond form, Emma Frost. Interesting. And Emma seems to kind of be the leader of whatever this group is. And, you know, and then, you know, monsters show up and everyone teams up, blah, blah, blah. And Carol is clearly the strongest one here. Mm-hmm. And then we get a Katie Barton. So clearly Clint's daughter. She's a redhead. So I'm thinking maybe Black Widow and, and, and Hawkeye. Sora, the one who made that blue side knife, mm-hmm. is the daughter of Quanon and Forge. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Very interesting. And then so we come across, and I'll I'll do some more introductions in a second, but come across this wall called the Lost. And there's a whole bunch of heroes that have died. And this is the thing that bothers me about these walls. Okay. Is I feel like when you go to memorials, they're in alphabetical order. <laughs> like names that are listed are typically in alphabetical order. Sure. Right? Sure. Yeah. Is that wrong? Because uh, I, I haven't been to the 9 11 memorial, but like when you go to like other like war memorials in DC, they're typically in alphabetical order. So it's easy to go and find the name you're looking for. Uh huh. And so there's this memorial. And Carol finds James Rhodey Rhodes. Right above his name is Kate Pride. Right next to his name is Tony Stark. Right under his name is Luke Cage and Thor. <laughs> you have Steve Rogers in the corner. You have Rick Jones. You have Spider-Man. You have Kurt Wagner. <laughs> you have Valkyrie above Peter Parker. Like, sorry, above Kate Pride. I just wanted to go for the, the hits here. They're going for the hits, which is obnoxious. But then, like... <laughs> I was also thinking about it, like, even in death, they didn't want to give Spider-Man's name out. Yeah. Everyone else got their real names except for Spider-Man. That is that is impressive. Impressive. I get that that's because they don't want Carol to learn that Peter Parker. But even if it, if it just said Peter Parker, it's not like she'd be like, oh, <laughs> Spider-Man. Yeah, that's really <laughs> there's, true. There's no pictures. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't show after Thor, but if they don't put Thor Odinson, I feel like that's a miss also. <laughs> anyway, it just, anyway. I don't like the grouping of names. Sure. <laughs> anyway, so we see a super old Jessica Drew, and she is kind of like the elder of this group. And we have team of this resistance. You have Danny Cage, Luke and Jess, Jess's daughter. Okay. Jennifer Takeda, who is hazmat. She's just older. We have Phantom X5, who is just... Oh, and that's who we saw before. Yep. The, okay. the, new, the new Phantom X, basically. We have Molly Hayes, who is Yay. a mutant runaway. I love that she always shows up as... Like, there's so many, like you know child heroes that get announced like sometimes like oh yeah power pack is here oh yeah but like molly is consistent like when the future x-men showed up in whatever crossover that was when bendis was writing it and Mm -hmm. she was she was on the team yeah that was cool i love that i love that so much and molly's great molly's a great character yeah she's she's so much fun now and like 
it's what is it going to be like 20 years before we get like uh, a young adult molly <laughs> i mean we never ever will actually because that's not how comics work but yes well i know but so i will say though that the molly hayes in 616 has aged yes. a little bit she's now in like elementary school as opposed to like she's i think she's a, i think she's in middle school now instead okay. of elementary or whatever yeah. she has grown yeah a little yeah bit. yeah okay okay but that's because runaways stopped for a while right <laughs> and franklin has grown up a little bit franklin has grown off world in another reality and she's and he and valeria are now like young teenagers yeah but even you know like within continuity he's grown up from being like a baby to like six years old Yes. Maybe even 10 years old. Yes. So at least there's that. <laughs> <laughs> we have Sora, the wolf. Her mutant name is the wolf, and she's, you know, Quanin and Forge. Irene LeBeau, a.k.a. Rogue. Oh. One guess on who that's, whose kids that is. Yeah. Katie Barton. We have Ellie Fimester, or Fimester, who's the real name of Negasonic, Teenage Warhead. Oh, okay. Which I don't know if I ever knew that. No. <laughs> I mean, such an obscure character. Yeah, it, seriously. Like, much less obscure in the movies than in the comics. Yeah. Well, and also repurposed. Because yes. it Negasonic Teenage Warhead character. is the little girl who died in Emma's arms on Genosha. Right. And now we have a new Negasonic Teenage Warhead because of Deadpool's fame. <laughs> right. They're just like, we want to make a new character. What what IP can we use without yeah. blowing anything up? Oh, this? Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. This, this little girl that could tell a future yeah. on Genosha and died? Yeah, let's use yeah. her. And give her a completely <laughs> different power set. No one will know. <laughs> I mean, if honestly, it wasn't specifically it the girl, me. if I know it, it doesn't, but like if it wasn't specifically the one that Emma was holding when she came out of the wreckage <laughs> on Genosha, yeah. then I'd be more fine with it. But it is I mean, it is. it's just too cool of a name to let die forever. It is a fun name. We get Johnny Watts, aka Fuse. He is on the Young Avengers right now. Okay. And he has the ability to. He's basically absorbing man. Oh, okay. Where he takes on the properties of, you know, whatever he wants to like hold, whatever is his sure. touching. And so he actually has a vibranium nose ring. Oh, cool. And so he just, so he'll just turn vibranium whenever he wants. It's pretty uh, cool. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. Yeah. Jerry Drew, AKA the spider. Mm -hmm. And then for whatever reason, Jeff the land shark is still alive and he's missing hey. an eye. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I love that's from Flintshark. Deadpool, right? From Gwenpool. From Gwenpool, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And then in King Deadpool, Gwen brought Jeff to Wade and was like, right. I feel like I might not have a comic anymore. And right, so I want right, you right. to keep yes. an eye on Jeff to make sure yes. he survives. And then the last person we get introduced to is Brigid Odin's daughter or Thor's daughter. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. But yeah, it's Thor's daughter. Sure. And Thor has since been killed and she has yet to be considered worthy of Mjolnir. Mm, okay. So we get an exposition dump of what happened with the world. Basically, what happened? It wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't anything to really write home about, I guess. <laughs> Your standard issue apocalypse. Standard issue apocalypse. Aliens were involved. 
there was a big war that was labeled the final war. A lot of people lost. A lot of people died. Avengers lost, X-Men lost, Inhumans lost, Fantastic Four, Guardians, Champions, Runaways. Kate Bishop died in the first war. And then, you know, people started to try to rebuild. Natasha, oh, it's confirmed that Natasha and Clint have a child. Hmm. Brigitte is born. Sora is born. Ooh, oh, we, I skipped over the big one. We get introduced to this girl. Um, ah, oh geez, I'll have to come back to it. But basically, okay. we get introduced to Rhodes' daughter. Yeah, yeah, I, I read. Rhodey. Oh, oh, Rhodey's, Rhodey's daughter. daughter. Okay. Yeah, and she's full black. Okay. So not Carol's daughter. Yeah. And Carol takes that as kind of a sign. And she has this ability to go intangible and invisible. Okay. And we never learned who her mother is. Yeah. And I don't know that power set on a black woman. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe, maybe Photon, maybe Captain Marvel. Ooh, I can see with, Photon. Yeah. Light, with light-based powers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although intangible doesn't really. Hmm. Although I guess light, property light, you don't fucking touch it. Right. <laughs> So a second war happened and this, there was a nuclear option. So basically, man, like the extent that so many heroes went to, to try to save what they could Mm -hmm. basically armor shielded up around this like village for a year. That's cool. Without dropping it. And while she's doing that, Hazmat was going around absorbing all of the radiation that she could to try to make the place livable again. Yeah. The village was put together by Magneto. (laughs) Yeah. Just, man. Creative uses of power is always awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Jessica Drew went out a lot because she has a natural immunity to radiation. And so she was trying... So she was trying to go around and find people and help. And basically, they found out that the sun was dying. <laughs> okay. Not yeah. what you want. And so what saved them is Carol from this universe realized what needed to happen. And so she went and fixed the sun. She like sacrificed herself and went into the sun and jump-started the sun with all of the power that she's like ever absorbed kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, so we get introduced, basically, this person who is, oh, (laughs) I'm only bringing this up because in this story, Carol has been much more in tune with, like, her powers and how they might affect those around her. Okay. So, basically, there's this tentacled monster that is trying to eat and kill everyone. It, like, ambushes the party kind of a thing. Sure. And Carol's, like... Everyone is too exposed for me to blow this thing up with huge photon blasts, maybe something more focused and precise than my usual. And so she actually makes like a two-fingered gun and shoots her photon blast just out of those two fingers. And she basically makes like a slice through the monster. I thought that was kind of cool. Like, just throw your, and again, it's more like different applications of the power set that you're given. Yeah, just just anything to avoid the inevitable like blue lasers versus pink lasers battle. Exactly. So that was really cool. So I don't know if we ever get Rhodes's first name because every time I see her, they just call her Rhodes. But basically, before the final confrontation, 
Carol tells Rhodes to go invisible and just stay invisible. And she's like, when should I stop? And she says, you'll know when. So, okay, fine. Okay. So we get to this place. They've been summoned by Ove. And by they, I mean Captain Marvel because she got pulled into this alternate timeline, right? So Ove asks them to come and we get introduced to Ove and the place that they have, it's called New Atlantis. Okay. At first I thought it was Namor, but like... Namor with a neck tattoo? Right, because he's got the wings. Yeah, no, that's also kind of like Hercules-ish because he's got these wrap sandal things. He's got the wrap sandals and the neck tattoo is just the bad camera quality. It's... Oh. It's... It's... um. Strings it's, of his it's beard. His beard. Oh, it's his gross. beard, and it's like woven into three like ponytail things. Okay. So he's like, "Welcome to Atlantis," and then this is kind of your classic. How is it a paradise on an Armageddon-ridden mm-hmm. world? He's very friendly and accommodating, and it's very strange. It's very Namor. I don't need to waste too much time. But basically, we find out that in this new world, in the past. Ove was born to Namor and Enchantress. Namora. <laughs> Except there is a Namora. Shoot. Yes, there is a Namora. Trying to couple portmanteau. They're like, you know, a Benefer or a Brangelina, but. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Namora won't. <laughs> yeah. So because, so Enchantress's name is Amora right. for those who don't know. As so really immoral. it's just. Oh, ho, ho. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so Namor and Amora and Ove is a thing. And then we get an introduction to this world and how this paradise is going. And it's covered by armor. Okay. And Ove is like, armor is being so nice and generous and, and offering her ability to keep us protected. Yeah. And, and they're like, okay, but how do you get your power? It's like, oh, Surge is being nice and amazing and offering their her power to protect us. Surge mm. was introduced in the first run of Thunderbolts. Surge the... Sorry, uh, Jolt. Jolt, okay. I was going to say, <laughs> Jolt. the mutant was in. Yeah, but they have the same abilities, so it doesn't sure. matter who I say. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Jolt was introduced in like issue like eight or 10 of the Thunderbolts after we had found out that the Thunderbolts were actually bad guys in disguise. But she is was this lost child who had these electric based powers, but wanted to do some good and wanted to join the Thunderbolts to try to save the world. And so, okay, so she gives us this like innocent perspective. Playing it straight on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of cool. So anyway, uh, we don't see Jolt like ever. And so pulling her for this was kind of cool. And then they're like, okay, yeah, but what about like your climate? How's that happening? It's like, oh, you might know this inhuman. Her name is Crystal. She has control over the elements. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, cool. And then the monsters that they fought at the beginning for the comic-based shenanigans are monsters from Limbo. And they're like, so yeah, what's up with that? And um, they're like, oh, yeah, magic is here. She's she's doing great. She's she's offered her services to us. And it's been a lot of fun. Huh. And and every time they bring up someone new, they're like, I want to go and talk to them and see what's going on. They're like, absolutely. Later. Sure. Your classic, Always a like, great sign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is there's clearly nothing to see here and everything is going swimmingly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they go exploring and they find all these people locked up in these like green glowing chains, uh-huh. very reminiscent of Amora Enchantress. 
and you have magic and you see crystal and you have jolt and Emma goes over to magic and it's like, Oh my gosh, what have you, what have they done to you? Are you okay? And she, uh-huh. and magic is just tired. She's worn down. She also hasn't aged now that I think about it. Huh. Like she still looks like magic from 616. I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But she, you know, magic says, you know, I tried, I tried to not bring anyone here for so long. I tried. I think it's been years, right? Yes, years, but it's all run together now, before and after, and then and now, and long and short, and you and me and cats and dogs. And okay, so she's like, yeah, she's you, gone yeah, she's lost. Yeah. And I was just like, slow down, you're not making sense. It's like, Emma, is that really you? Yes, I'm here and I'm going, I'm not going anywhere without you. <laughs> and they hug. They have like this nice embrace. And Ileana's like, I miss you so much. She's like, I missed you too. And then they get approached by Ove and Enchantress. And they're like, the F, man. Then, you know, you have your classic fight with backup and mostly against limbo demons. They've been convinced that Captain Marvel is the key to sending Ove back in time. That's where all of this is coming from. Ove has this plan. He wants to go back in time to basically save Atlantis before it fell. (laughs) Okay. They are convinced that the life energy of Carol is needed to send her back. The reason why they have magic locked up is because of her... Time travel. Yeah. Yeah, her time travel portals. So that's basically the gist of all this. It ends with... We find out the true nature of Ove has always been bad. Ove is the one that killed Namor as a child. Okay. Enchantress is scared of him, but it's her son. And so she doesn't want to, you know, hurt him. Yeah. But she also doesn't stop him. Enchantress finds out that Ileana was keeping things from her and that it wasn't necessarily Carol's life force that was needed mm. it's just any life force oh, okay and so but iliana created this situation to try to get carol here to save the situation kind of uh, thing. yeah okay then brigid finally becomes worthy and so she gets mjolnir and Sweet. she gets the power of thor and then she goes hey carol are you ready and carol's like i've never been more ready and just blast the shit out of her with electricity and carol gets this like new kind of godly like binary form where she sweet. looks like this okay sweet so that was fun and then you know comic stuff happens more and more fights and then enchantress uses her spell to and magic to send Ove back in time and enchantress uses her own life energy to do it Oh, also, Ove says Imperia's hex, and it's kind of annoying. (laughs) (laughs) He only said it once, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) But anyway, Amora gives up herself to send Ove back in time, and they end and are wrapping things up, and old woman Jessica decided to have Ileana use her life force to send our Carol back to 616. Okay. And so they send her back to the moment that she disappeared. And so Carol, still in her flaming binary form, yeah, makes it back, gives Jessica her love. And she knows that that ship now is a sea ship. 
it was Ove's ship, and Ove made it back a little bit before Carol did. And so uh, now, okay. bad guy Ove is somewhere in 616. He's had some time to prepare. Yeah. Climactic ba- battle needs to occur. Yep. Carol's power is starting to diminish. Mm-hmm. She's hanging out with Rhodey, and she's like, hey, we need to talk. And basically, because this daughter Rhodes existed in the future, she's like, I can't. I, I know she's she wasn't mine, and I can't keep you from the potential of creating this absolutely wonderful hero that is your daughter. Rhodes is kind of lost. He's like, this is insane. Do you realize how insane this sounds? A few hours ago, we were planning our first real vacation, and now we're breaking up over a possible future that might never happen. <laughs> and Carol's just like, if you'd met her, when you meet her, you'll understand. He's like, I wouldn't count on it. And so she so she broke up with Rhodey because of this possible future, which feels kind of like a stretch. Yeah. But if they are convinced that she needs to be single for whatever they're going to do next, then right. okay, whatever. Yeah. Or Rhodey needs to be single for whatever is going to happen next to him. I don't right. know. But the next title, it just says next crash and burn. So I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. But yeah, so introduced to some interesting characters, some new applications of power sets and an introduction to a new big bad. Yeah. So this happens, I'm pretty sure this happens before King and Black. So I'm wondering if Ove is going to show up in Atlantis Attacks. Right. Atlantis Attacks, for whatever reason, is a King and Black side story. Okay, that's weird. Right? They don't seem to have much to do with each other. No, right? And that whole Atlantis Attacks thing is going to be it's marketed and as... And we've had a bunch of things that say that they're leading up to Atlantis attacks on their own. All of the... All of the Korean... Yeah. All, all, of the, all of the future fight characters. Exactly. Yeah. So it's being advertised as Namor and his Defenders of the Deep versus the Agents of Atlas. The new Agents of Atlas right. who are like Wave and Arrow and all yeah. them. So I don't know why that's why that's a key in Black Side story. Mm-hmm. And that feels disingenuous. That feels rude to Namor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so anyway, Black Widow. And I, we're going to keep Spider-Man for next time. Also, because I think there's not as many crazy stories. Also, you'll see mm-hmm, yeah. on the shelf, the next volume that I would be reading is uh-huh. the next Spider-Man volume. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm going to skip that. And I'll 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 read a couple of books. Okay. That. Okay. But yeah. So anyway, Black Widow, written by Kelly Thompson again, who is on Captain Marvel right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It stands out to me because the the spine is black, and not your typical white. Oh, all the rest of them are white. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought it was going to be a one shot, but it has the number one down on the bottom. So we'll see. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> Just have to commit to having something that looks different on your shelf. Yeah. <laughs> This opens up with Widow doing a Black Ops mission for or a Wetworks mission teamed up with Clint and brought in by Cap. Okay. And we get a nice little display of the kind of art that we're going to be shown in this book. And it's oh. really fun. So basically, this artist does like giant panoramic action scenes yeah. where you have the same character just going through your whole scene. And then yes. you have little highlight bubbles of things that have happened. And the color, the colorist is doing an incredible job here too. The, the yeah. it's it's the all in this red justice. red monotone or monoscale coloring, yeah. and then the the inset 
panels of the particular scenes are sort of silhouetted with a purple background. Yeah, because it's Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> and then and so she's going through this hallway of goons and yeah. it has two speech bubbles. One is a continuation from the last one that says now because somebody's cutting power for her. Yeah. And then it ends with her at the end of the hallway next to a door that says, I'm here, blow it. And so you have the Hawkeye loading up and then mm-hmm. shooting the arrow and it shows the track of the arrow to blow up the lock. That is it's so cool. And the arrow is also in purple. Yeah. The, the I love I love what colorists can what a good colorist can bring to a comic yeah just fantastic yeah so that was a lot of fun she does her thing she gets a hard drive she gets to an outside window she says hawkeye ready for my exit an arrow lodges into the wall right next to her head and she looks at it and she she thinks to herself she's like oh i guess clint's still still a little pissed at me didn't realize leaving him out of those missions with bucky would make him so salty or perhaps it was because i called him soft i don't know either way i should make things right with him life's too short the last time we saw widow was in this title called web of black widow okay basically when she first came back to life from being <laughs> killed in secret empire she was found by a like buddy cop team up between Hawkeye and, and Winter Soldier. And at the end of it, she leaves both of them a note. She leaves Hawkeye a note saying, thank you for finding me. You know, don't look for me. I have mm-hmm. things to do. Sure. And the note she leaves Bucky is, I have information. Meet me here. We have a mission to do. Huh. And that basically like she's making a judgment call because Hawkeye, one, Hawkeye is amazing. However, yeah. he's more in the light, in the spotlight. He's more by the books about yeah. things. Yeah. Whereas Winter Soldier, one, in 616, Bucky trained Natasha <laughs> while she was going through the Red Room to become yeah. an assassin. And so she she knows he has a very different, very specific skill set. He also is way more okay with killing everyone compared to Hawkeye. <laughs> right. So, very much you so. know, for, for the missions that, someone like a black widow is going to go do probably mm-hmm. going to call in the trained assassin and not kind of have a body count. Yeah. Yeah. So Hawkeye found out he calls her out on it. She called him soft. It was, it was a whole thing. So anyway, yeah. that mission ends with someone had broken into her apartment. She's like, what the fuck? She gets outside and she gets hit with some tranks, starts to fall out of her apartment down into the street. And then the next time we see her is three months later, and she's like working at this like construction place in San Francisco. Huh. She's just kind of doing her thing, and she's living this like nice life. She's walking by, she sees this motorcycle in a window. She goes, she really likes it, she buys it. She's just kind of walking around. And then Hawkeye is watching the news, and he sees her walk by the background of the news story. Oh, okay talking based in San Francisco. And the news story is covering like cities across the U.S., including this landmark building behind me located in the heart of San Francisco. Uh, Something, something, something. We don't know what's happening, but it doesn't really matter. And Clint loses his shit. Yeah. He spits his food out, takes a picture, calls Clint, always calls Bucky. Bucky says, I'm busy, hangs up on him, sends him the picture. (laughs) 
Bucky calls him back. <laughs> and he's like, that's her. He's like, I know, Bucky. I sent it to you. She's not undercover. How can you be so sure? She wouldn't let a random newscast catch her on film if she was. It's like, oh, good point. When did you last have contact? Three months, maybe more. She just vanished again. Well, she does that. Yes, she does. How long since you've seen her? About the same. We argued. Nothing fatal. I think we got to go check on her. Didn't we just do this? Yes, but this time it will be different. How so? Well, for starters, this time we already know where she is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they find her, they trail her, and she's living this weird, just a home life. She's an architect. She has a fiance. His name is James. And they have a child named Stevie. What? The child is this little redhead. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to get all into it. Okay. The child's like a year old. And at the end of the first issue, we pan out to see that she's being monitored. And she's being monitored by our man, Arcade. Oh, man. Right. Okay. Interesting. This is a little more high contact than Arcade usually goes. It is. And he's very not happy with it because this is not a murder game. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, details aside, comics happening... Yeah, She has little moments here and there where she like goes into like automatic black widow mode because this woman was about to get raped in, a, in an alleyway and she beats sure. the shit out of these guys. Yeah. And just very confusing things. They hire this babysitter. Her name is Helen to watch little Stevie. For whatever reason, Nat is going on automatic and she goes and creates this like bomb out of the smoke detector. Oh, She's shit. very confused by it. Oh, her name is Natalie Gray, okay. this, this alias. Yeah. And we find out that Arcade was hired by a handful of people to do this whole thing. He was hired by Viper, a.k.a. Madam Hydra. Yeah. Hired by Weeping Lion, potentially 2.0. It's two cousins dead by the Black Widow's hand, now something else entirely. So huh. we don't exactly know, but yeah. it was these they might have merged or something, but anyway, they have history with Black Widow. Okay. Red Guardian, Alexei Shostakov, people who have seen the MCU Black Widow. Alexei in the Black Widow is her dad. Okay. (laughs) In 616, Alexei is her husband. (laughs) Uh It's very different. (laughs) (laughs) And then this other woman, Snapdragon, she's an assassin, your typical go-to assassin type. Yeah. The four of them hired Arcade to take Natasha off the grid, basically. Hmm. Not necessarily kill her because she's died before and she just comes back. (laughs) This was mainly Viper's plan. It was like, use Arcade to basically brainwash her and give her this like happy civilian life to the point where she doesn't even know anything is wrong and doesn't even want to find her old life kind of thing. Yeah. She has your typical, like, I feel like something is a little different, but I'm so happy. My life is so perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. We find out that, so while Clinton Bucky are surveilling her, they get dropped in on by Yelena Belova, who is another Red Room graduate. Right. She is the second introduced in 616 as the Black Widow. She's, She's basically Natasha, but blonde. Yeah. She's had stints back and forth of being a good guy and a bad guy. Mm -hmm. But point is, she is ride or die for Natasha now. Okay. (laughs) And turns out Yelena was Helen 
Helen was Elena in disguise for the for babysitting Stevie. Oh. We find out that Stevie is genetically Natasha's child. Yelena got some DNA samples and ran the tests. Huh. And Stevie is James and Natasha's kid. They also have a cat named Logan. And <laughs> which is very Cute. interesting because. Yeah. Because of her history with, or, you know, with Wolverine. Yeah. So Natasha's got a history with Wolverine, a romantic history with Wolverine, a romantic history with. Wait, they have a romantic history? I believe. Or some sort of, they've got Cause, a cause she was history. A, she was a kid when they first met and he was an adult. So that would okay, be. sure. I mean, he's like, you know, a hundred years older than anybody that he would romance in 616. Right, so but let's this just point, not think about that. <laughs> okay. So they, so, okay. So I was struggling to remember any, any sort of relationship between the two. So maybe it is not a romantic relationship, but I know they have a history together. Yeah. <laughs> So she has a history with Logan. She has a history with Steve Rogers. And she has a history with James Buchanan Barnes. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that her fiance's name is James. Mm-hmm. Her son's name is Stevie. And her cat's name is Logan. Anyway, mm-hmm. I only bring that up because it gets called out at the end. Yeah. So Weeping Lion is growing impatient because he wants to just kill her. So he's like, okay, she's at peak happiness. What better time? to remove her than now. And Hydra's like, you're an idiot. Yeah. She's happy. She's not even trying to find her old life. Yeah. We wanted her off the board. This is the way Yeah, to go, right. not to quote Mando, but this is the way. So <laughs> Weeping Lion's like, well, too bad. I already sent in assassins. So cool because Weeping Lion has put the group in this situation. Natasha goes into automatic when she gets home and she just takes out every single assassin. She's very confused. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know why she knows all this stuff. She doesn't know how her body is moving on automatic like this. Yeah. She takes everyone out. She hears them speaking Russian and it's like, why do I understand what they're saying? This is very strange. She gets to James who is holding on to Stevie and then a thing goes off on her neck and she passes out. All of her memories come back and she sits back up. Weeping Lion is very confused. He's like, how did that happen? That's impossible. Frying that implant should have killed her, overloaded her brain. She should have been a vegetable by now. And Viper's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) You've killed us all. You damn idiot. She sends in her team to try to help clean up and at least buy them time. And And she, Viper respects Black Widow. Yeah. She's like, listen, I'm going to send in my team. Yeah. At best, we're going to, it's going to buy us like five minutes. <laughs> we need to go. <laughs> uh, That's dope. So Tasha remembers everything now. She sees James and Stevie okay. and she like, and she's like broken. She's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what, oh my gosh, because she remembers she remembers all the memories that have been planted into her brain yeah. for this life and yeah. how happy she was for the last three months. Yeah. And um, so she's like, she's bringing it all in. She's trying to like process it all. Yeah. But Hydra agents are on their way in and she's yeah. like, okay, James, do you trust me? He's like, yes. Okay. You need to do exactly as I say, and we'll figure this out. You just have to, you just have to stay down and move when I tell you to. And he's like, okay. okay. So she takes out the agents. And then Yelena shows up and she's like, hi. And Natasha's <laughs> like, what the hell's going on? She's like, yeah, I don't know, but I'm here for you. What do you need? And so they go to a safe house. James and Clint, sorry, Bucky and Clint, because we have a James now. Right. <laughs> Bucky and Clint are there to support. And we get 
all the backstory into like what Natasha remembers. And so she was tranked by Viper and she woke up once during the surgery and saw James on the table next to her. And she saw the vial that little Stevie was being grown in. And so that's how we know that that's that they are genetically related, blah, blah, blah. And Natasha knows that others are involved. She just doesn't know who. And she's just kind of going through like this Rolodex of uh-huh. people who have a vendetta against her. Anyway, so she's breaking all this down to James, letting him know yeah. what's going on, who she is, all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's like, listen, you're going to have to go. <laughs> Like, I'm going to assume you would do anything for for Stevie. And he's like, of course. And she's like, I would too. In order for you two to live and have a life, you need to start a new life. I need to be dead to you and you guys need to go away. Damn. And and he's like, I don't want to do that. And she's like, I don't want to do that either. However, (laughs) this is the life. (laughs) Yeah. Like, the only way you're going to be able to live life is without me. And then... She walks away to go and do this planning session with the crew. As she does, missile launch takes out James and Stevie right behind her. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So she's heartbroken. She's heated. She goes and bucks up everyone. Everyone (laughs) shows up. Viper shows up and tries to shoot Natasha. Alexi gets in the way and takes a bullet for her in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And he apologizes to Tasha, he's like, listen, I was never with them. They approached me. I knew they were going to proceed with or without me. I knew I could I could better protect you if I was on the inside. I had no idea, no idea the lengths that they would go to. I'm so sorry because giving her a happy life is literally all he would have wanted. And <laughs> interesting. That was the path. And so Natasha says, I, I, I believe you, but that doesn't mean this is over for us. Leave now before I change my mind. And we will talk again. <laughs> and he's like, okay, okay. So Alexi's off the grid or taken care of. Yeah. Weeping Lion is the one that took the shot. And he, so he's got a sniper uh, outside and he's like, I got eyes on Barton. And then as soon as he's about to take the shot, the next frame is an arrow going through the sniper barrel, the scope into this guy's eye. Sick, sick, <laughs> sick, sick. Awesome. <laughs> and it's just, and then it's just, it's just Hawkeye being like, we've been lions taken care of. <laughs> um, <laughs> Snapdragon gets destroyed. <laughs> I don't know how she was ever a villain for antagonist <laughs> for Black Widow, but she was hilarious. It lasted <laughs> half a page. <laughs> Viper gets dropped. All these Hydra men get dropped, mainly by Hawkeye. So this is another one of those splash pages from the artist. Yeah. God, that's just beautiful. from Hawkeye's point of view up on, up on the roof. Yeah, you've got Yelena all over the place doing her thing. A yeah. shit ton of Hydra agents, all with arrows sticking out of them. <laughs> you've got you got Widow over here doing her thing. It's just it's such a fun view. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, you have them explode, burning the building, taking it out, and then you have the end with Natasha talking to Bucky because Bucky wasn't there for some reason, uh. and that was all because Bucky was actually spiriting away Chris and Stevie, sorry, James and Stevie. And the James and Stevie that Weeping Lion blew up were, was a hologram, was a projection. Uh, okay. And as long, I mean, if they resolve it in the same issue, I'm yeah. way more okay yeah, with yeah, it yeah, than yeah, totally. a reveal later. <laughs> yeah. And then they kind of have like a heart to heart. Bucky is like, 
you know, at least I'm just glad I was there and they address the fact that they're realistically not going to be able to be together anymore Mm -hmm. because she's always going to have this unresolved love for this other James that she knows is alive. Yeah. It's just out there. And so it's never going to be like an honest and true love for Mm. the two of them. So they kind of close that door for each other painstakingly. Yeah. Bucky is still always going to be there for, for her, but they are spirited away. A lot of breakups in the Kelly Thompson verse. Yeah, seriously. She goes back and picks up Logan, the cat from the house. Yeah. And you have this conversation between Hawkeye and Nat. And he's like, honestly, I'm kind of offended or hurt that like, I wasn't a name reference for like your new happy life. Yeah. Like you've got Logan, you've got Stevie, you've got, you've got James, like where was I? And, and that obvious response is just like, they did it. It was not my choice. Yeah. (laughs) Like they chose those names because my, my barriers would be even more down because I'm comfortable around those names, but they did. They just did not choose you. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I have all the faith in you. I still love you. It's just, they didn't choose you. I'm so sorry. Sure. But like, that just sucked. Like, I can't <laughs> even imagine. Right. If I had this, like, uh, if I was kidnapped and had this like alternate dimension and like, and you didn't you know, have a will, and there wasn't a will. Right. <laughs> like you had, you had a Rachel, you had like a Cheryl and you had right. like a Yadidia. Yeah. I'd be like, okay (laughs) well cool (laughs) thanks bad guys i appreciate you (laughs) and then you have this last like talk with yelena and nat yelena's being like so you know what are you doing next and she's like um i've got i uh, i want to do something that james and Stevie would be proud of that i'll be proud of i could use the company and Yelena's like, I got you. So the two of them are now teamed up and we'll see where they go. Okay, sweet. Yeah. So though it was, um, it was, a, it was a fun read. It was just, it was interesting in the, the, like, it wasn't even an alternate reality, but it was, it was an arcade <laughs> plot kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like you're living a different life. Yeah, totally. It seemed pure and honest and great. And I feel like that's the first time Nat's ever had just this like innocent life. Yeah. No kidding. She's, you know, she's, she's been in the red room since a child. Yeah. Since she was a child raised. And yeah. It's a very created. disorienting place for her to, you know, it's like captain Marvel. It's like, she was a newspaper or, or a magazine editor for a while. And like, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> Thor had this like extended sojourn as Sigurd Carlson or whatever, you know, working on a construction site. Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm sure Steve Rogers has had these weird, you know, normal guy sojourns in the seventies or eighties or whatever. But yeah, Mm -hmm. for widow to have that very out of place. Yeah. Like there's a scene where she goes and like picks out a wedding dress and she came home to the assassins with a wedding dress. And it's just like, yeah, Man, such a different life for her. So I, don't know, I, I really liked it. It was, um, it was very, it was very fun. It was a good read. Nice. But yeah, so Spider-Man will be for next time. Okay, so you're saving both Spider-Man and the Companion book for next time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They they kind of go together, and yeah. that by itself is 11 issues. So we're gonna save that for. Okay, one. sounds good. Kong's reviews is such a blessing and a curse because, like, <laughs> when I have bad comics, they're easy to just like pass on 
but like right when there's so much good stuff to like reminisce on it's 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 hard to keep it in like this like timely manner and when you're doing alternate universe stuff I feel like there's so much more exposition required in order to get to the plot, you know, in order for any of it to make sense that it's like you have to go through it in more detail than just like being able to rely on these characters that we all know. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your patience. It's all good, man. Shall we know Mon? Let's know Mon. I'm mostly just bummed that I didn't get any of the spider gushing this week, but. I know, I know, dude. It's. (laughs) <laughs> the reveal of kindred <laughs> so the reveal of who kindred was yeah you was were so hyping hard. it on you were hyping it on group chat too i know <laughs> well because how they ended just pissed me off because how dare they it like last remains is such a like end of a chapter at least it felt like it at least because yeah. it like a lot of it culminated in this yeah but they didn't resolve everything hmm. so obnoxious <sighs> The reveal of who Kindred was, I did not see coming. Interesting. It was, it's one of those things where it's a character we know, but not in this, like, you know, frame or whatever. Right. And so in this light. And so that was fun. But then how brutal Kindred is. The things he does to Pete is wild. You're just like, how dare you? Oh, man, it's my boy. Like... (laughs) That, oh, man, I would get so involved. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, so Last Remains was a trip. Cool. I'm looking forward to it for next week. Absolutely. Anywho, Noman. Noman. You want to do the recap? Catch us up to where we were? Okay. So we have the chapter we're on is called Anomalous, I think. Yes. It's a the long chapter now uncharacteristically is focusing on Neith. And how did it start? It started with let's see, she was waking up with horny dreams and then Pippa came by. Right. Oh, and she oh, and she was gonna she set up a date to go and meet the dog walker guy. And then on her way to go meet him or whatever, a call went out and she has to go and deal with that because she's the closest one there. So in between that, she went and hung out with Tubman again. Yeah, so she went out to a bar. And when Pippa Keen came and did her medical inspection, she said, you have to do something not related to the case. You have to do something for yourself, something fun. Go out to a disreputable bar. And she said, sure. Oh, and then she, uh, uh, looking at the the fire judge's band. Yes, the the band was called Fire Judges, and they were saying cryptic things related to the case. And this was kind of a lead from Lenrot from their first encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while she's there, she gets an alert over the witness that she is the proximate officer. Basically, and it's not like the closest police at all, just the closest police of appropriate rank mm. to a you know, murder detective that is um, for a murder in the tunnels underneath London, and it's Oliver Smith is is the victim. Right. Yes. Dude, I was, oh man, I was paying so much, like I was listening to you and interacting last week so much that I legit, my only notes are the names of the fucking chapters. (laughs) (laughs) Voice on Scratched Vinyl and Anomalous. 
Yeah. And then the who is Oliver Smith. <laughs> and yeah, while she was at the bar, she was having this flirtation with Jonathan Jones, the dog walker. They finally started texting each other. Man, I hate that. The, I hate that. Is he going to be a plant? I don't. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Okay. All right. Okay. She's oddly yes. fixated on him. There's the, right? I mean, just like any other hot dude. She met, she ran into him once very briefly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Oliver Smith is murdered. Yeah. So Oliver Smith is murdered. And Neith, so she's in a tunnel underneath London. And there's some description of the future city infrastructure, which is super fascinating to me. It's one of eight major commuter tunnels underneath the city, without which at London size, it just couldn't function. It says it's nearly 70 miles long from one end to the other. And when first constructed, required its own dedicated police and emergency unit, though many of these functions have now been subsumed by the witness. In the event of a power outage, which is therefore engineered to be many times less likely than a direct meteor strike, the atmosphere inside would become lethal in a matter of minutes. It is a self-contained world and the tunnel must be lit dynamically or else the rhythm of the pools of shadow and illumination can induce pseudo-epilepsy and weary drivers. It is almost never closed. Today will be a very bad day for the capital's commuters. Interesting. Yeah. And Oliver's death creates an absolute nightmare for his job, which I found ironic. Right? Because his principal job was directing traffic flows through the city. (laughs) Are these tunnels real? Like in our world? I don't think any exists to this extent right now. I don't Mm -hmm. know London in particular, but it sounds similar to like the big dig in Boston, you know, mm-hmm. like just a large network of underground transportation tunnels. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, I, I would have to look that up. I'm not sure. If you didn't look it up, it means it's not important. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> we can keep going. <laughs> uh, so she walks up and when she gets to the body, she starts humming the English patriotic song Jerusalem because apparently it's, quote, physiologically difficult if not impossible to vomit while humming so if you ever want to avoid throwing up just hum so you want to edit in here in the background that song jerusalem i've got a public domain link for you here So uh, she takes charge of the uniformed officers at the crime scene, and in addition to securing the immediate area, she gets every on-call investigator available to collect all the info on Smith in the system, everything at his workplace, Turnpike Trust, and the last month of his life to the absolute granular limit, end quote. She also announces that she's officially connecting his death to the Diana Hunter case, which, if we remember, is codenamed Nomon. Meanwhile, she has the witness look up the meaning of the word catabasis for her. Catabasis having been said by the band leader. Mm. The word was used repeatedly by the band at the bar because, quote, you don't stop looking at a slim, complex clue just because someone dangles a fat, distractingly obvious one in front of your face. And the witness defines catabasis for her as, quote, the mystical journey of Orpheus into the kingdom of Hades, and by extension, any of voyage into darkness. Greek, kata, against, down. Basis, the place on which you stand, literally a pedestal. Therefore, catabasis, a journey down beneath the place where we stand. And here is Smith, dead in a tunnel. Tragic, but he was a villain. So here we go. She goes back to the body, and it's been cut. 
quote, cut, gouged, and finally torn apart into five pieces. Ah, it's random. Right. And uh, (laughs) each piece is illuminated by a different sort of witness-controlled piece of lighting, which are acting as de facto evidence spotlights. Quote, she breathes in and out and tries to see the scene as a text. When she looks again, she sees not illumination, but the spotlights of a stage. The pools of lights are not coincidental, but painstaking. This is agony and unthinkable fear written in blood across the gray surface of the road. It is a display, a victory procession. This crime is not a crime, or rather, its criminality is a side issue, the envelope in which the message is delivered. It is a code, and, the, and death is just a convenient vector. The inspector feels a chill. If Hunter sacrificed herself to make a point, and Smith was the instrument of her self-destruction, and Smith is now dead, then whose message is written here? Smith's employer? His confederates warning one another to stay true and quiet, or face the consequences? Or is this Hunter's work, planned before her arrest and now playing out? In which case, who else is on her list? She also, I'm skipping ahead here, but, you know, perhaps Lenroad as well. She says, should she be looking for a gas attack, a biological weapon? No, she doesn't believe it. Terrorism of that sort is not Hunter. It's not Lernroat. The former would be appalled by mass killing. The latter would be bored. We're all going on a journey together into the underworld, and Smith is our conductor. Or ferryman, is that it? He was Hunter's, that much is clear. So she asks witness, the witness what the, you know, given the wounds and analysis of them, what's the most likely cause of death? And the witness replies, shark attack, the witness says, 42 miles inland. And then, almost apologetically, anomalous. Shark attack? Shark attack. For, okay, as I was saying that, I remembered the sharks from that guy that saw the sharks. From Kiriakos' chapter, yes. Okay, fine. And and (laughs) torn apart like Scipio from the Athenaeus chapter. Mm. I was going to complain, but I guess I get it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, not in, not really, right? Like, physically, it doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, but okay, so in my head... Symbolically, there's, there, it kind of connects some pieces together. Yeah, it's just... So in my head, he has been murdered by a person or persons. And yeah. I'm trying to think how one could simulate somebody being eaten by a shark, but also keep all five pieces. Yeah. So she accesses a a witness camera and watches the crime as it happened. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So Smith's car is alone in the tunnel, moving precisely one kilometer per hour under the limit. Somehow or other, he is the only one here, a caprice of traffic flow. Neith hopes he found that interesting. Then the car slows and stops. And an automated car, obviously. It doesn't even bother to point that out because it's, you know, but yeah, Yeah. self-driving. Then the car slows and stops. Smith doesn't seem to know why. Picture in picture, there's a dashboard camera looking up at him. He huffs irritated and makes a call for assistance. The system asks him to remain in the car and assures him that other traffic will be warned or diverted. It's a standard message and Smith relaxes. Then, little by little, as nothing happens, he grows concerned. He looks around and evidently sees nothing, hears nothing. Neith, recalling her recent moment of midnight fear and the image of Lernroth's hand reaching out to her from the mirror, feels a spasm of sympathy. Smith, too, seems to be having that unpleasant mammalian response to silence and inclusion, the twitchy and unwelcome sense of an invisible watcher. 
There's always a watcher, of course. That is the promise of the system. You are never alone, never unprotected. You need never be afraid of the dark. The witness cuts away from the interior of the car. The tunnel remains empty, white green lights burning. Then, as the control al algorithm confirms that no other vehicles are now inbound, the lights begin to dim, power-saving measure. The tunnel goes from a bilious artificial daytime to a cool silver nitrate dusk. He tries to make an outgoing call, a call and can't. There's no signal. The microwave booster must have been powered down at the same time as the lights. Smith toggles the connection repeatedly and starts looking over his shoulder. So far as the inspector can observe, he has at this moment no reason to fear attack, nor to suspect that such an attack, if it comes, should come from behind. For these few instants, he is more alone than is generally possible for anyone in the system. Would Hunter have found this restful? Some distance down the tunnel, just as Smith turns frontwards once more, one of these lights goes out completely. Smith says in what must be some sort of understanding, oh God, and now his face is not nervous but actually terrified. Whatever he knows, he knows without a doubt, as a mouse must know the presence of an owl. Another light goes out. Oh no, oh shit, shit. Smith's voice is rising and tightening. The witness posits, based on expression and cadence, that he is reviewing causalities and options and cannot locate any that please him. The next section of the tunnel is plunged into darkness. Smith abandons the coat. If a phone call were possible from his location, he would not need to make one. Help would already be on the way. But Smith is living the nightmare now. The machines are broken and the world is coming to an end. No carrier, the witness says, so that he understands. Smith gets out of the car and runs hopelessly. He's not wearing the right shoes and he's fatter than she realized when she met him. Leather soles skid on the road surface and he slips. He looks back over his shoulder and starts to run again. The inspector wonders whether he's telling himself that it must be a nightmare, and if so, whether he's running through some variant of those same three tests she performs herself. There's text on the walls of the tunnel, some sort of notice, if he dared stop to read it. Perhaps that's how he got caught, but no. He runs with a single-minded certainty and desperation that almost makes her care about him. Smith looks back over his shoulder, and then the inevitable happens. As he's turned the other way, the five sections of lighting ahead of him go out in quick succession. The darkness actually seems to lunge. Smith plunges into it. She has a brief glimpse of the scene in passive infrared. Smith falling painfully on his face, something cracking in one knee. He gets to his feet and calls out some sort of apology. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Although frustratingly, the conversation is in medias res, and he doesn't feel the need to say what he's sorry for or to whom. She hears what might be footsteps, or water dripping from a pipe, or some sort of static, and then the feed cuts as the recording comes to an end. Power-saving measures, the witness says. Anomalous. Reconstruction follows. It does not occur to her what this will be until she sees it, and then it is too late. In the two perfect images created by the system to fill the gaps in its own knowledge, Smith once again keels on the floor of the tunnel. He cannot see, and so he is blind to the monstrosity that hovers over him. As he makes his brief apology, it flicks away into the absolute subterranean dark, and then an instant later strikes him from behind and shears through the upper torso, white teeth casually cutting bone. The pieces fly apart, tumbling and bouncing, showering the road in bright ejecta. The shark spits, tossing its head, and something falls from the shining, shining from its teeth into the guttering at the side of the road. That ridiculous watch fob, something that she noticed him holding in their first meeting. <laughs> So that's a hell of a scene. So is a shark that swims in darkness? Is that, is that what we're thinking? It's, it's that what seems it, to be represented? It seems to be representing right here. Or, I mean, but it's also like this lighting is controlled by the witness, right? 
Yeah. So it's kind of like the witness itself almost. But then what is physically tearing him apart? We never see it. Like right. this is a witness reconstruction that shows the teeth and everything. Yeah, because, right. Because, so stupid. Because that's Ugh. that's that's all the closest that you can get to, you know, understanding his actual wounds. And that's what the witness tags it as. But there's no evidence that that's actually what it was. And yeah, it's 42 miles inland. That makes no goddamn sense. Oh, that's so frustrating. Yeah. Okay. Neith walks along the road and kneels down and finds that watch fob, which is engraved with a burning torch and a bundle of sticks. And the witness immediately tags it. Flambeau, the witness says immediately, with faces. The latter were appropriated by Mussolini's fascisti, but were originally the badge of a Roman magistrate. The bundle would more usually contain an axe. In this case, the flambeau suggests a more recent armorial confection or, or a logo rather than an ancient source. Although in some variations of the Prometheus myth, he, myth, he conspired with a serpent to steal the sacred flame and that serpent was fed as a punishment to titans. It could even be thought of as a simple rebus, meaning, I know, Neith tells the machine, fire judge. Mm. She scowls down at the, ob- at the object in her hand and looks up into the crowd, knowing with a furious certainty whom she will see and preparing herself, the hunt fizzing in every inch of her. And there it is, the pale amphibious face of Lernrote, coat collar turned up against the evening chill. She sees just a flicker of the smile, and then it's gone behind a white personnel transport with a thick metal grill across the windscreen. Wait, what is... She sees Lernrote in the crowd. In person. In person. Right now. Right okay. now. Yeah. Yeah. She um, chases Lernrote through tunnels, upstairs, dogged and determined. Other as- cops she's assigned joining the chase and then getting tired and fading off. The chase takes them to the Soho Square tube station. She has the witness close it off, seal it completely, shutting in tens of thousands of people at 2 a.m., taxing vent- ventilation and temperature systems. The witness isn't able to help her find Lunar in the crowd, however, and Neith is panicking that she lost them, but finally catches a glimpse. They start the chase again, and Lernrote is has this like odd loping stride and outruns her without even looking like they're giving any effort at all. Quote here, each stride betrays the same uncanny weirdness as the bleached Kelpie face, a movement that speaks of a muscular invertebracy, as if this is not a human being she is chasing at all, but something bonelessly old or chimerically new, a person augmented with the muscle of a python, with cells from the trunk of an elephant. She looks again, extends her hand to issue an instruction, and then she stops because she sees. She sees and she stares, not at the figure she is pursuing, but at the cameras on the ceiling of the passageway and at the vile, impossible thing they are doing. It is worse than the spineless hips, the dislocated steps. Those things she expects somehow from her quarry. If she learned tomorrow that Lernrote was an image projected onto her eyes by her glasses in response to some illegitimate algorithm planted upon her by personal devices by a fill-in, or perhaps by Smith himself, her only response would be that that explained a great deal. This is different. Where is Regno Lernrote, she asks. She's asking the witness, not believing what she hears when the response comes, even though she anticipated what it would be. The fugitive is not visible to system surveillance at this time. And it is true, in a way. As Lernrote moves, each camera is turning to look elsewhere. 
The inspector knows with a disembodied, eerie certainty that if she looked at the screens upstairs right now, she would see a babble of confusion and consternation. And that confusion would appear to be a perfect map of what is happening down here, but it would be missing in perfect synchrony with Lernroth's movements. The image of one person, the one person she really needs it to see. That's amazing. <laughs> right? What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So finally, Lernrout darts down into a tunnel, and Smith, at the end of her endurance, starts to slow down. Lernrout darts inside a door and clangs a bolt behind them, locking Neath out. Quote here, For an instant, Neath sleeps or passes out. When she opens her eyes again, she sees in the light of her terminal what is written here, stenciled over the flaked metallic paint of the door. She remembers, just in time, that saying it out loud may have consequences. Firespine. The inspector walks back to the platform and climbs out of the tracks. Open the doors, she says after a moment. The suspect has evaded capture. Then she watches the worst part of it all happen again. I will inform the street-level officers, the witness sa says. They may well be able to establish contact. Overhead, one by one, the cameras resume their vigilance. <laughs> you got a face, bud. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. Interesting. Okay. I'm just conceptually. Yeah. This feels like, <laughs> I love that this is my takeaway. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it's, an, it should be, and I mean, that's the point, but it should be impossible to avoid all cameras because we live, I get that the, the implication is that this is the witness going out of its way to avoid Lenroe, but like everybody has the witness Google glasses. So like, that's true. How is the witness compelling that? I guess it's more impressive that the witness is compelling every user to look away as Lunrout passes by. Like or I imagine somehow not able to see Lunrout no matter what. That is less believable to me. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> then, then like if the witness knows I'm about to come around a corner, then the like i could give my user a suggestion to be like this person on your right is looking at you yeah yeah <laughs> and you just tell that person to look over yeah and yeah, so yeah. like that level of concerted effort like just controlling security cameras that's crazy in itself however comma we just talked about how we're running through a crowd or, yeah. you know, like there's all these people in the way. You like, raise a good point. And, and she's only noticing the camp, the security cameras, because those are the obvious ones. Right. But everyone is on the witness. Yeah. So like that is such a larger program to actively avoid a single yeah. person. I don't know how to explain that part of it, but yes. And, and you so like a great point. That is a larger conspiracy crazy program to me than Lenrup basically being an amphibious vampire and is not <laughs> visible through a mirror kind of thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So crazy. In the aftermath of this, Neith obviously has a little bit of freak out, questioning absolutely everything. Yeah. Quote. 
The inspector stands outside the station in a circle of emptiness that belongs only to her, all around the many minions that she has summoned to do the work, oblivious to the fact that it is pointless, that their quarry set, on the, set them on the scent and has now salted the trail with aniseed and pepper so that the hounds are confounded. She is momentarily bereft of direction. If the witness is so compromised, to whom should she report? In theory, yes, to the people directly. But short of standing on a box in speaker's corner and shouting with all the other prophets, how should she reach them if not through the system? The public sphere itself gets its news through the same machines that watches and records. She would be mad to assume she can broadcast her findings by that route. Perhaps she can, but she cannot plan based upon that premise anymore. She had assumed that there might be a threat to her personally, but not to information. You can always get information out these days, except if you can't. I'm thinking about, so Neith was wearing the witness in Diana Hunter's house when she first met Lenra, right? Yes. It's just she was not connected to the grid. She wasn't connected to the grid. The she took heritage. She took local pictures but they weren't in high enough fidelity with the lighting and the single angle that she was able to make for the witness to place an ID. Okay, so that sort of answers the question. So the visors that they have has a local hard drive for short-term storage. It seems so, yes. So that was my other thing. It's like, shouldn't she have a visual recorded record of Lenrout before all this going down Yeah, from that meeting. Yeah. I mean, she has, she has Lenrout's description into the witness as a person of interest to be flagged and nothing's come right. up. And now we see why. Yeah. Oh man. And moreover, she's learned that the system itself is compromised. Yeah, seriously. And if the system is this totalizing force in society, then there's no recourse to work around it. I don't feel like Lenrout is anybody, but I feel like my approach to try to find him <laughs> would be looking for anybody on the system that has disappeared in the last 30 years. Like, <laughs> yeah. Anyone who has stopped showing up on the witness and then going through and finding out how many of them are dead. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Quote here, the witness has been compromised. She can't know to what extent. Oliver Smith is dead and Lauren Roten is invisible. Hunter was right and something is wrong and it must be fixed. She has a memory of the phrase from Kyriakos' chapter, Greece shall be torn no longer. She should be exhausted and there's lactic acid in her muscles, not just in the feet and legs, but all the way up to her core and her shoulders. Stress and effort to the point of failure. And yet she feels in some way light. Fire spine. Lernroth's message, and if the obviously proximate word is a little much, call it oracular, oracular instead. Smith is dead. The witness is compromised to a significant degree, and therefore, by definition, also the system as a whole, the two being inseparable. If the machine is not an honest broker, then the system is, for the time being and to a greater or lesser extent, not a perfect state at all, but a perfect prison, a panopticon in which the condemned must assume that they are watched at all times and in all places, and act in line with the will of an arbitrary power. That power may counterfeit the action of justice in most cases, but justice incomplete is not justice. It is the anticipation of wrong. The system has many, as many eyes as it needs, and the witness does not blink. It is distributed, intimate, internalized, and perfect. But at the same time, she finds a sense of relief and purpose. 
The greatest thing that she could hope for as an inspector is the most meaningful case of all, a real challenge that is a match not only to her skills, but the meaning of her work in the first place. She wonders, you know, what if the system cannot be fixed? And what if it can, but can then once again be compromised and so on and on and on so that one might never truly be sure whether one lived in heaven and hell or hell, by definition, hell. So in a sort of fugue state, she walks to a market in Oxford Circus and buys a doll's house with a mirror at the back. She also buys some light paper, a box of soft pencils, and a hard steel clipboard. She goes to a cafe and assembles the dollhouse. She writes a message on the clipboard and puts it inside, grabs the house by the handle, and takes a train to Tubman, Tubman's place. Tubman's wife answers the door, and she's delighted to see Neith. Kind of get the sense that, like, Neith would only be here if it's goddamn important, and you know, despite it being four in the morning. Oh, man. Lernot's wife is overwhelmingly welcoming. Tubman's wife. Yeah, Tubman's wife. Yeah, sorry. Tubman... Her first name, we and Neith learned for the first time, is Ronald. <laughs> <laughs> and so she sets in and Tubman says, Inspector? No, she replies. This is unofficial, Tub. Ronald. Not work. Just happened to be passing. His eyebrows twitch. Oh, right. I came to so you, show you this, she says, lifting the doll's house. I think I'm going to start collecting. Oh, well, let's, he shrugs. Have a look then. <laughs> She's a, yes, Neith says. I just thought I needed a hobby. Tubbs expression is Neith lifts the fashion TV studio plus exclamation point onto the table. It gives her to understand that this is the kind of behavior he has come to expect from the world. And he is almost relieved to find that she is as insane in her own measured, careful way as everyone else. <laughs> then a little internal monologue here. For God's sake, Tubbs, sit down and look. He does. She closes her eyes for a moment, then hears his voice jaunty and clear as usual. I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> Ronald, Maria, his wife, says, be nice. I am, darling. Believe you me. There is no such thing, Neith growls. No, here, he says, fat finger tipping, uh, tapping on the paper. She sees her own handwriting first, the shape of the letters fractionally off because of the awkward angle. Tubman. I think the witness is compromised, and I don't know how badly. I need to investigate without alerting the opposition. Help. Yay. Interesting. Oh, man. And so she's doing this in a way to avoid both camera surveillance and saying it out loud. Under it, Tubman has written, go public. That's the makeup counter, she says out loud. Look, there are little cans of spray and everything. Oh, one of them's fallen down. You know, so just they're, they're keeping this, this public conversation going. Underneath that, Neith writes, not, rate, not ready. And he writes, I'm, I'm skipping over the public conversation, but it's you know, it's, it keeps going in the same way. What I'd count on. Point is to get it, the secret out, not to prove it. Once you've said it, it has to be investigated. She shakes her head. I think they may, may be ready for that, for me. I need proof, something that's not arguable. Can't trust Neural. Don't know who might be involved. And when he writes again, the thick fingers are clumsy. Get proof. Fast. Better to be alive than right. Help. Help me. And then he writes, he writes down a hexadecimal IPv6 number, the silicon equivalent of a street address. Below that words, squid, Tubman has written, because Kraken is illegal, all right? So do not download the Kraken add-on in case of emergencies. That would be very wrong, and I'd be personally disappointed in you. She said, thank you. Can you sort it out? Do you know how it was done? She, she writes, is being done, and then no. Tubman shucks his eyes for a moment. 
talk to the wax man question in tarot bank question mark exclamation point talk to him he's a wanker but he knows the system the way a fox knows hens how but tub just underlines talk talk to the wax man the wax man was yeah, I was going to say, we've had a wax man before, right? She mentioned him briefly in a very early chapter. He's the only one who's gotten away. She half resolved the case, proved wrongdoing, but he managed to hold up in a embassy, Julian Assange style. Mm. He was a criminal, a hacker who unsuccessfully tried to infiltrate the witness. Got it. Yeah. So first she goes to a sandwich shop and downloads squid which is kind of like a jailbreak app for the witness it shuts down her pov from the network first off she can still though she can still use her equipment it says uh the squid is liminally legal where on the margin it falls depends on how it was how it's deployed its ostensible use is to shield citizens from the unwanted attentions of unrestrained american and asian robot advertisers which would otherwise harvest data from their personal lives through every available aperture and then deluge them with information about alternative products every time they view or purchase anything on the international network for this reason most people now use a system filter portal to access the rest of the world but a robust minority like their access to reflect the external experience to better understand the people of foreign lands, hence the squid. This kind of occlusion only works moderately well against the polystrate surveillance of the system, but that moderate dividend is potentially sufficient to make use of such a minor criminal act, act unlike its add-on, the Kraken, which is, to all intents and purposes, a digital commando unit in a bottle, prone to hostage-taking and property damage. The squid does not actually try to control anything. It's more like a very rowdy and antisocial street party than a strike team. It will not block anyone who is looking from seeing the direction of her inquiry but it will diminish the chance of her setting off any narrowly defined alarm scripted around her in person or looking out for any directed scrutiny of her targets. The inspector believes that any official query over a low-level bad act here will either readily be dispelled when she has built her case or utterly negligible when set against the size of the boot that will fall on her if she fails to do so and is noticed trying. If she wants to hide herself more completely, she could theoretically download the Kraken through the squid, but it would be considerably more atomic if she were discovered and very much more like, uh, likely to be a problem later. The squid is a compromise, probably less than half permitted, barely le- better than a quarter effective. Through the squid, she connects to the public records office and requests tax and location data for Oliver Smith going back 20 years, and for good measure, Diana Hunter as well, wincing as the software automatically also searches for 35,000 similar records. And it's just like, you know, it just goes absolutely nuts. Checking the DNA from Hunter's autopsy against the statutory examples, which have since the, uh, the middle part of the century been kept for all hair and nail clippings from salons and beauty parlors for the early detection of disease and addiction, blood wow. samples from standard tests and inoculations, hospital and dental visits. Whoever wrote this thing, the inspector realizes, has absolutely no sense of civic or personal responsibility at all. Responsibility at all. The squid grabs her data and runs, leaving administrative chaos in her wake. And yeah, just on and on. Hunter remains a cipher. Time to do something about that, too. And if she's correct in her assumption that they all knew one another and that relationship is at the heart of this, then it's just as well she uses the squid as the, for this part, too. 
She calls up the inventory file from the Hunter House and drops the brand styles, shoe sizes, and color combinations into a commercial customer profiling program, then uses a cranky but effective trend-reversing algorithm from the Victoria and Albert Museum, which reliably tells you, based on a sample of your life now, what clothes you would have been wearing in any given decade. She instructs the squid to log on to the central bank record server and look for her purchasing patterns, which would indicate Diana Hunter 30 years ago. Results to file and cross-reference. She watches a blizzard of similar requests goes out and twitches a little as the bank server automa- actually stutters as it hits. <laughs> also, postgraduate <laughs> degrees in disciplines that are related to cryptology, neuro- neurophysiology, semiotics, and narrative behavioral psychology. Autopsy report connecting past injuries to potential health database hospital records. The inspector feels a guilty grin building behind her lips. This is strictly speaking all very wrong, but in a necessary way. Her case has grown from its small, if serious, beginning into something much graver. Neith is almost certain that this investigation is what Hunter wanted. She did as much as she could to provoke it, even unto death. Surely if she had not entered the interrogation chamber, the whole sequence would have never begun. And so the dilemma becomes whether Hunter can be trusted. Certainly, there is more in her memories, much more. But is it the truth? Who was she? What did they want from her? And what did she want that they could not supply? There's a line in here, you know, she becomes more and more Neith believes that the answers to this case are in Hunter's head, not in the real world. And there, at last and infuriating, she has something in common with Oliver Smith. Damn it. Also, the witness checks in on her, asks, are you all right, Inspector? Yes, I'm fine. You are not working according to your usual pattern. You are very upset by the loss of the suspect in the public transport system. The case requires unusual strategies to bring it to a useful conclusion. I'm working out how to proceed. It might be helpful if you discuss that with me. I need more information first. There are significant areas of this case we don't yet understand properly. Please clarify. Hunter evidently believed that she had a method for subverting the interrogation process and possibly more. I need to rule that out as a matter of urgency. The system can assess any specific threat, but you cannot, by definition, hypothesize an attack that would circumvent your own safeguards. Otherwise, you would have already blocked it. That is true. Do you have any further information on my outstanding searches? Unfortunately, witness efforts have not yet been able to locate the suspect Regno Lernrot. It is probably time to consider taking an image directly from your recollection of events. It, would re- it will require perhaps half a day, including recovery time. She thinks of Nomon. In rushing on the gusts of a storm come grit and bird shit. No. Hunter's message there, at least, is relatively clear. So, letting the witness in brings outside, and she wants to, she wants to avoid that. So... Keep looking and please set a meeting for me with Pippa Keen tomorrow at midday. I will want her to monitor my function personally for the avoidance of doubt. Yes, Inspector, of course. Talking to the machine is disturbing because everything is exactly the same. If she asks for something, it will happen seamlessly. If she does not ask but does need, it will happen anyway. She's carried along on the wave of the system, and yet she now knows that the security of it is an illusion. There are gaps in its knowledge and capability, even in its willingness. Has it just lied to her? How would she know? But someone has beaten the system. Someone who is not Hunter. She remembers a quote from Diana Hunter's interrogation. No one beats the machine, not in the end. The only person who came close was a madwoman. Poor, pale Anna. Maria Tubman is still in her head. I am Maria, like the Magdalene. That's how she introduced herself when they first met. Maria had said, I am Maria, like the Magdalene. 
But this, of course, reminds Neith of Anna Magdalene, the crazy woman. She was an analyst who had the brain illness that in her manic states made her super paranoid mm. and was the only sort of like prior example close to Diana Hunter, where she didn't die under witness care, but she was effectively erased as a person and they had that they, they had to like completely right. take apart her personality and start from scratch and then she remembers a quote from Lernrot in their first meeting and then she makes a connection between the word magdalene and the english word how it's usually pronounced more like maudlin and then it says one wouldn't want to be maudlin it's graceless that's the Lernrot quote that she remembers and then she makes another connection the name Anna from Hebrew means grace. So oh, some connection to Anna Magdalene. Learn wrote again, telling her something, perhaps everything, in ways she wouldn't understand until she found them out all over again. But telling her what? Whatever truth Hunter knew? Or a signpost to Learn wrote's own secrets? No. Learn wrote surely gives up nothing by choice. This prodding and poking is to achieve an end. More and more, Neath believes the answers to the case are in Hunter's head, not in the real world. So she goes to the embassy where Waxman's been holed up for years now. Again, a Julian Assange type situation. She notices that he has a copy of A Thousand and One Nights and some pulp detective novels on the shelf and compliments him on his books. They sit down together. So he's known as the Waxman, W-A-X, but his real name is Dr. Waxman, W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N-N. Okay. Yeah, so... Dr. Waxman, I am investigating a compromise of the witness in the system. If you, if you assist me and I am successful in dealing with the problem, I can confidently offer you release. I am not technically detained. Amnesty, then. Conditional on your speedy departure and forgive me, promise not to return. Let us say that would not entirely be against my inclination. I used to love London, but I think now the skyline will haunt me until I die. You have my word. If I leave here, I will not come back. But what guarantee do I have? Mine. He snorts delicately. My dear inspector, with the greatest of respect, your bare word is a little tenuous. That is true. He ponders, eyes roaming a little too widely in the room, dwelling on, too long on her body, her face. He's not used to company, has forgotten the polite regulation of gaze. Do you know, for the first few months, I actively loathed you, and after that, I became a little enamored. Spock, Stockholm syndrome or some such. She asks... If I wanted to break in the system, how would I do it? The waxman's eyes open a little. I'm the last person who can tell you that. I thought you were the best. He gestures at his surroundings. I was. Now, not only did my approach not work, but if it ever could have, the matter has no doubt been addressed. And then they kind of get into the case. She asks, how did your approach work? And he says, granting that it didn't. In the simplest terms, your architecture is protected by a five-part lock. It's not like a safe, but let us pretend that it is. To get access to the contents, one must have a physical key. In this case, that is a terminal hardwired to a closed network. There's a list of registered and authorized persons who may act on that network, and each of them has a complex and unique passphrase. One, two, three. So far, also uh, not unassailable, though also not comfortable. So you have to be an approved person, you have to have a passphrase, and you have to have a physical key. Then... You have to have your biological identity, not only your DNA, but the mix of microbial organisms living on and in your body. He smiles. I beat that one, you know. She does know. She asks how. 
He says, I took an aggressive regimen of antibiotic, antiviral, and antifungal drugs for one week in a clean room, then cultivated the biome of a senior academic researcher in security at one of your universities and in my body. I ate what he ate, drank what he drank. I stole water from his bath. It was fascinating, actually. I noticed a tangible alteration in my perceptions. We really are a composite organism inhabiting our entire bodies, not just a sing single hum homunculus seated in a skull. He makes a face. But that is, a, that is the point. The connectome requirement, that is not surmountable. I think it may be the perfect lock. It is not merely behavioral. That was my mistake. I had simulated my target from thousands of hours of recording. By the time I attempted my operation, the simulation was word perfect. The effect was uncanny, but the connectome analysis revealed me immediately. The quality of my thought was not the same. I was no more persuasive to your machine than I would have been seeking to evade facial recognition in a carnival mask. It sees the thought and the affect, and it knew me for a completely other individual. To beat the connectome lock, you must become the target. And if you do that, you will no longer want to beat the lock. It is circular. Brilliant. He shakes his head in rueful approval. Five locks, Inspector. Five gates through which the pilgrim must pass to enter the Holy Land. But the last of them is the truth, which by definition cannot be counterfeited. Do you care what happens? He nods again, alarmingly dog-like, and kisses her hand. Yes, I hope you succeed because I don't like it here. I hope you fail because some part of me hates you. He asks her about some other leads from the case. You have changed my mind. I think quite deeply. Ironic, is it not? Exactly what I could not achieve on my own to beat your system. Ah, uh, well, and now I am torn. Stop, stop. Her eyes open fast, hard stare at him. Was she asleep? Did he say it? You said you're torn. Yes. Does that mean anything to you, that expression? That expression? He shakes his head. What about Anna Magdalena or the fire spine? Still no. Fire judges, Burton. His eyes flick to the bookshelf, then return. He has lost interest in her now. The conversation is over and he just wants her to go. Au revoir, inspector. Let me know how it goes. But she doesn't get up. She just pulls her knees up to the chair, and after a little while, she realizes he has put a blanket over her and another folded up for a pillow under her cheek. She thinks she will rest for a while, but inside her head, there is so much unwound hunter that there's almost no room for her at all. Oh my, what? <laughs> that's the end of chapter 11, Anomalous. Oh my gosh. Dude, so much happens in this chapter. I know. Quick one, just to finish off. Chapter 12. It's called What Can Have. It's another sans serif chapter, and it's Diana Hunter on the rebus obsessing on Nomon. She goes through the same, through the definition similar to what the witness gave her before. They're a little different and a little more like literature and mysticism, mythology, stuff like that. But, and then she adds a fifth definition, it seems, and now also. The pattern of thought injected to my, into my brain by a senior myrmidon of the witness to put me back in my place. They say dysfunctional, but all I hear is uppity. She talks about Potemkin villages and kind of goes through the history of, you know, Catherine the Great being led through the countryside to see her, you know, to see her empire, the empire of Russia and, and the chancellor Potemkin, knowing the truth that you know, quote, shit cake, disease ridden serfs begging from frostbitten lips and extending three fingered hands to their absolute monarch would not entirely fill her with joy. So he grabbed a couple hundred minor nobles and dressed them as pe uh, peasants and paid them off. Then he built a bunch of fake villages and rode Catherine through them. She was delighted to see that agricultural labor was surprisingly easy in the soil of Russia, was amazingly fertile, et cetera, et cetera. 
she admits, I've been building Potemkin villages, faking it. The trouble is that with Noman in my head and now with the crash dive, I've run out of places to put myself that aren't either central, uh, that aren't either my central console or my autonomous survival systems, like breathing and regulating body temperature and so on. All the gubbins that happen in the brain at such a low level that we basically don't think about it. I've shunted myself into some part of the firmware, erasing what was there. I honestly don't know what it does, used to do. Whatever happens here, I won't be the same person I was. I think I knew that. I must have done. It was always obvious, and I find I'm at least relatively happy with it compared to sitting still while this world is stolen from its people by a new variation on absolutism. Apparently, I really, really don't like hierarchies of power, which is, in fact, I think I need a cup of tea, oolong by preference. That's also Jonathan Jones's preferred tea. But anyway... She um, thinks a little bit about Noman again, but she says it, she cuts out the vowels and replaces them with spaces. It's kind of like how you'll often see in Judaic texts, they'll spell God G hyphen D or G dash D. Like we don't want to directly address the holy or profane the name in some way or, or, you know, the, the power symbolism that comes with a name. We're going to avoid it as much. And, God it is itself a avoidance of the true name of God and just, but anyway, and she's saying, write it without all its letters so that the thing named cannot hear you. And that's a similar process to what Neith is doing right now, hiding from the system in a way, mm-hmm. or from the witness. She says, we used to talk about this, me and Robert. I can say down here without fear, fear of being overheard. We used to talk about a thing called the, a reboot box. It comes from the plasticity of the human notion of death. Once we thought death was what happened when your heart stopped and your brain flatlined. Now we know you can be brought back from that. In fact, we use that state in combination with cooling to allow explantation surgery, where an organ is removed from the body and treated for a disease in a way which would not be possible if it was still in place, and then returned to the cavity, the damage repaired around it. Without surgical stasis techniques, there would be no time. The patient would bleed out. With a proper stasis chamber, one might have as long as half a day. That's enough to do impossible things, to repair someone who is emphatically dead and return them to life. How can I remember all that, but not what I wanted to achieve by all of this? Is that some sort of joke? What if even even so you're damaged? The paramedics don't get to you fast enough. If what needs to be done exceeds even our capacity for perfect repair, if your brain is just bluntly smashed up, the information in it gone, however functional the repair may be, you're never going to be the same person. No one is the same person from one day to the next, and an event like that will change you, and that should be okay. But you will want continuity, and of course, it's in the interest of the person you are now to reach out to that person and try and achieve some measure of continuance into them. Serial selfhood. This is getting mighty post-human in a way. It's kind of the, mm-hmm. the technologies of the near future blending into the technologies of the far future and the technologies <laughs> of the present are already blending into the technologies of the near future. And she says, hence, a reboot box, a decent sized container into which you put your favorite books, your favorite music, the things that spoke to you as a child, as an adult, your diary, your confessions, your desires, your oldest T-shirt and your most treasured piece of jewelry. Anything that symbolizes your identity now that says in ways that a straightforward verbal statement of self never could who you are. Ideally, you'd put places in your reboot box, too, but of course they'd never fit inside. So you put a list in along with a list of smells and times of day, favorite foods and any other things that matter. And that that mean you and the things you love most profoundly. Hank McCoy had that in Astonishing X-Men. 
Yes. That ball of yarn. Yes, absolutely. We had a plan, or I did, or I dreamed that I did. The rebus is an escape, a crisis option. It leaves a great deal of me behind. But I must have had a plan if I had this submarine ready and waiting. So she said, I trust, I trust that I had a plan. I cannot imagine what it might have been. Seriously, what possible outcome is there for me here? I cannot, in the long term, win this fight. Either they will damage my brain so badly that I will die, either actually or effectively, or they will, will have what they want from me. Presumably then, I contain a lie. And amid the many things, the many true things they will discover in this interrogation, they will find one lie which will hurt them. They will act upon it, and in some way it will cause them trouble. I must have believed it would be worth it. I wonder what it might be. Perhaps if I can work that out, I can push it towards them, and once they've swallowed it, I can relax a little, let them have the rest of me without causing my own death. Perhaps after that, I can even be a happy moron for them, live a well-adjusted life and not have to worry at all about this crap anymore. I'll be a hero, and all, the, and all the while I'll be happy as well. I won't even have to know I'm a hero, although it would be very upsetting if my secret brought the whole thing tumbling down I was horribly unhappy and didn't know what I wanted all along. Jesus, this business shit is always it, it is shit always up. What kind of possessed me? Well, that's an unpleasant question under the circumstances. And that's the end of the chapter. But reboot box. Some idea that there's a bringing Hunter back from all of the things that she's lost. Okay. That's what, that's what I was going to double check. I get it's implied then that Diana Hunter has a reboot box somewhere. It's implied. She thinks she would have have had it. She remembers that it's something she talked about with Robert. Interesting that we talk about that now when the end of the last chapter, Neith is starting to feel like Diana Hunter and is losing track of where Neith ends and Diana Hunter started. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, if, if Hunter is trying to find something... Now she's being put in the investigator role. She's a searcher rather than a hider. Interesting. Wow. All right. Yeah. This book set itself up to be one thing and then pulled it completely on yeah. its head. Well, it's, yeah, it's changing. It's changing the like course of the plot, like almost every chapter. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it great? Man, this would be a, an absolutely amazing show. I don't know how you could possibly film it, but yeah. Like, I just, I keep on getting glimpses of like the same kind of storytelling that they did with Legion. Yeah. Of just like seeing things through Neith's eyes and memory. Yeah. And then, but also having the perspective of what's actually happening, uh-huh. happening but not knowing which is which. Yes. Yeah. That totally. would be interesting. And also just like the pacing would be so hard if it was a show like you would you would either have to like because I feel like shows don't want like you think of like a Game of Thrones or something like you're switching back and forth between all these plots very quickly. And instead, we've had like long chapters from yeah. each of the different man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you want to get us out of here? Or do you want to do you, do you want to talk? I don't I don't want to cut you off. Do you want to talk more Nomon before we go? No, it's fine. It, it's it's I'm I guess I'm just like processing. I would be interested. I think it'd be crazy to find out that Lunrout and Witness were connected and mm. not 
and not opposing forces, but like in the same together. Mm -hmm. I feel like that could be a potential thing. I think also the ways that the Neith narrative is running into these sub narratives symbolically and now plot wise with, you know, Oliver Smith and Scipio, they were, you know, they were introduced to be similar characters as, you know, political mucky mucks. And now they've died Mm -hmm. in the same way or, you know, a shark or this idea of walking through walls. Like there are these like real symbolic parallels that seem to have started in the sub narratives and wormed their way into the real world. Yeah. It's worth examining or musing what the hell is going on in that regard. Yeah. This is, this has been very interesting. Like it's the, there's all, there's a crap ton of undertones of like using memories to remember oneself and or piece oneself back together. Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, the people becoming different people or. You right. Know. Yeah. So Waxman kind of became the guy that he was using to try to hack the witness. Well, he tried, but he couldn't do it completely or else he wouldn't yeah. want to hack the witness. <laughs> right. Like he was becoming this other person but mentally he wasn't there yet he didn't like his subconscious wasn't there yet he didn't trick the connectome yeah yeah and this whole neith looks like a younger version of diana hunter Mm -hmm. like it feels like this is just one long multiple like this is going to be the the one time of like 30 that diana hunter has continually rebirthed herself and we're just being brought into one of the cycles of <laughs> what happens with the other character that has that grows up and matures and becomes the person that they are until the previous version of them dies and they mm. have to like initiate the the situation to start the rebirth process it's man it's, it's weird <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh boy. Well, let's just have to see what happens next, I guess. I guess. How so. many chapters left do we have? Oh man. The chapters get really short at the end. There's actually a lot of very short chapters left. I would say we probably have six more episodes. Six or seven. Okay. Well, I've got a Fantastic Four book next. I have a King Deadpool book next. I also have the next Avengers next, which is called Enter the Phoenix. Okay. Because with Age of Khonshu, Phoenix Force got involved in all that other business. Right, 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 right. And then we have Namor taunting needing the Phoenix or wanting to bring the Phoenix back. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure this happens before King in Black, which means it happens before Atlantis attacks. It's... Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, that's what I've got going on next week. Uh huh. I guess we should Yikes. probably we should probably end. Call it. it there. Okay. Yeah. So I guess with that, we're just gonna put the outro music here. Okay. And um, say goodbye. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your birthday, man. Thank you very much. I have a phone call to return. All right. I'll let you get on that. Oh, man. All right, man. I'll catch you later. Yeah, take care of yourself.